Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. I think something just fell off my desk. <laughs> I heard something, uh, some piece of paper rattling to the ground. Well, I'm stuck here for three hours. I'll get to it later. Um, this is going to be an interesting day because the entire show is going to be improvised. Everybody's off. Everybody's doing stuff. Uh, Candace won't join us. Uh, she's busy um, today, so she won't be able to join us in the third hour. Uh, Derek is not around, so he's not going to be able to join us at the bottom of this hour. Um, the, the second hour of the show, I don't have anybody scheduled anyway, even though we had two fabulous guests last week. Uh, and Scott Yingling and uh, and Nikita Kent uh, from Yingling Self Defense, uh, they were fabulous. I wish I could have uh, gone out to their um, demonstration, martial arts demonstration. I had a a previous engagement, as they say. Um, so, uh, but I'll be out there soon because <laughs> it sounds like fun. I'm looking for like you know a senior martial art. You know, those of us in the over 60 crowd that want to stay healthy and that won't uh, destroy my hands, you know, so I can still play guitar. So you, you got to think of these things. Anyway, so at least on the guitar front, I found a, a Tuesday night jam. Um, so, uh, so that's going to be fun, too. So I get to get a chance to play out in front of people, which is always more fun than sitting at home and playing, even though uh, uh, that's where you work out all your, your interesting uh, things, too. So if you're – just to make a comment here. If you're a political activist of any kind, uh, there's two things that you absolutely have to have. One is a sense of humor. Uh, well, maybe three things. Two is to be able to take your wins uh, and treat this as kind of like a sport and a game. Uh, and the, well, maybe that's, a, you know, take your wins where you can. Um, and the third is have an outlet, <laughs> you know. So so treat it like a sport. Take your wins where you can. And, and don't worry about your losses. Just keep going. Uh, have, a, have a sense of humor and have an outlet. And so my outlet is rock and roll guitar. And I'm getting pretty good at it. I have other things, too. I want to get back into archery uh, and some other weapon stuff. We have a, a stand your ground, our local facility here in Milton. Uh, I learned how to throw axes. That was exciting. So you've got to, as an advocate, if you're going to be in it for the long haul, um, then you've got to have humor, you've got to have an outlet, and you've got to treat it like a game, like a sport, like, uh, you know, and it's, uh, and otherwise you go crazy. And so that's, that to me is the secret of being an advocate. Uh, and so, so we have little challenges like today where, where everybody's off doing something else, you know, and I'm here for three hours. Maybe it'll be a two-hour show. I don't know. Maybe it'll be an hour and a half. I haven't decided yet. You know, this is literally this is a totally improvised show. And so if you want to call in, pretty much I'm open to a lot of different topics. I, I have a plan. I mean, I'm not totally winging it, um, but uh, a lot of things are subject to change based on who calls in, who, who types in on live chat, uh, and whatever else is going on. So hopefully Cyanide 77 will join us from the Netherlands again, and we'll get sort of a European report. Uh, if he could do that, uh, send me websites. I can actually you know, check those out during the show. That's interesting. And other folks that are calling in, I was just uh, reconnecting with a friend of mine in New Zealand. And so the problem with getting him on the show is that the time difference, 7 to 10 here is 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, Auckland, New Zealand time, which is not really conducive to being on a talk show. Because most people are asleep then. Uh, I'm actually getting up at four, but that would be so, you know, but um, that's, that's kind of different, but I'm crazy. <laughs> I, I enjoy getting up early. I really do. It's kind of weird. Uh, my most productive, I, I work two eight-hour days. So I work about 16 hours a day. First one's like four till noon. And the second one is, you know, three until 11. <laughs> you know, so those are my, uh, um, those are my two eight-hours. So I, I do a 16-hour day uh, with, with a, like a siesta. <laughs> it's kind of weird. All right. So what's going on? So the serious uh, topic today is uh, um, the title of the show, When Murder is Standard Government Policy. 
And, the, and then I give us examples, Waco and COVID. And so, gee, what do Waco and COVID have to do with each other? Uh, it, government oppression, uh, violations of constitutional and civil rights, complete um, dictatorial power, uh, and, uh, and absolutely convinced that they're right. So this, this is probably what is the basis of this. Uh, I didn't think of this until just now. But these people, uh, well, I'm sure I thought of it before, but it just, you know, it, it fits perfect context here that all these folks absolutely convinced they're right. You talk to the, the branded insurrection. They are convinced they won the election after they stole it. Absolutely convinced. Talk to anybody else out there. And, and of course, a congressman comes along and says, well, wait a minute. If, uh, if Brandon really did beat Trump, you know, from a basement uh, without campaigning, uh, with nobody at his rallies, uh, with, with no effort whatsoever, then it should be pretty easy to beat him again, right? <laughs> you know, if he really won. So what are you guys worried about? Beat him again in 2024. Well, of course, they know that's a bunch of nonsense. So the people who know most that the election was, was stolen are the people who stole it. And that would be the Democrats and the deep state Republicans, particularly one Mike Pence, uh, who is like one of the lowest forms of life on the planet, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And so that's a problem. The, another problem is, and I posted this on Facebook uh, recently, that uh, the, brand, the Trump electors are still out there. They've never been dismissed uh, they've never been overruled. They've never been uh, revoked, rejected. They're still there. You know, so there are seven battleground states with valid Trump. Ele- I'm going to do a Substack article on this probably next week. There are seven battleground states with a valid slate of Trump electors. Well, if the states would reject their branded fraud electors, because we know the election was a fraud. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, and replace them with Trump electors, put Trump over 270 electors, he's back in. And because of the 22nd Amendment that says if you serve less than two years of a term, it doesn't count against your two-term limit. Well, it was less than two years of a term uh, as of January 21st this year. So ever since January 21st, Trump could go back to his White House, you know, take the, the second half of his, his term and still run again in 2024 for a full term. That's what the 22nd Amendment says. Yeah, it was designed for uh, people that, that – uh, uh, it was designed basically for Johnson. You know, Johnson, who took over for Kennedy when Kennedy was assassinated, uh, of course, the irony is that Johnson probably has something to do with it. So that's for speculation and uh, really good investigative reporting. Anyway, um, but, that's, uh, but that's what that was for. But it's in the Constitution. It's the law of the land, the supreme law of the land, something we'll talk about in a little bit, that that gets misconstrued, too. Um, so, so that, in fact, I think I don't want to, I'll talk about this with Jonathan. There's a really interesting case in Missouri where, a, uh, where an Obama judge, uh, and I, it's sad to think this way, but I'll be honest with you. You know, when, when I see a black judge, the first thing I think of, like with uh, um, Jackson, you know, is that are you an affirmative action judge? You know, when you see a white male judge, you know, they still might be incompetent and, and total loony, a total leftist Marxist, uh, but they didn't get there by diversity. <laughs> okay, so, the, so that's the only thing that might be in their favor. But when you see a black judge, the first thing that unfortunately I think of is are they an affirmative action judge? Or are they just, you know, just as incompetent and Marxist as a white judge might be? I mean, I don't know. Or any other person of color, which I hate that designation, um, because I'm a person of color. I have color. I'm not invisible. You know, white is a color. Again, I, I will restate the scientific principle that in terms of light frequencies, white is the presence of all colors. So, so white people are actually the most people of color, <laughs> if you want to go by, by physics and science. You know, toss that to a leftist one day and see what they say. Um, and so, but the, so in other words, black is the absence of color because it's the absence of light. So you can't have a light frequency in, in absolute darkness, and therefore there is no color. So, so black is the non-color. 
there's the person of no color, and white is the person of all color. <laughs> I love to do that to, in front of like a leftist sociology professor sometimes. But you have to think about that. So when you have a, you know, when uh, Obama and Michelle Obama are trying to fill the entire branded insurrection with black women, uh, appointed to all levels, you know, Supreme Court, press secretary, and it goes on from there, uh, you sort of think this is, this is, you know, this is the DEI. This is what they call diversity, um, equity, and inclusion, and what I call division, extortion, and idiocracy, because that's what it is, is division. You're dividing people by race and, and sex. Um, it's extortion because you're forcing it on people on, uh, with the full weight and force federal government. Uh, and it's idiocracy because it seems to be a requirement that everybody in the Brandon insurrection, the stolen government, uh, has to be less intelligent than Brandon. So that's hard to find. It's really hard to find people that are that stupid, uh, but they managed to do it. And so, you know, you look at the uh, Secretary Granholm of Energy and Pete, I heard it pronounced Pete Boudiget. What, is he French now? <laughs> Pete Boudiget, who got there because he married a dude. Uh, Granholm got there. She's a white woman. So she got there probably because she's a woman. Um, Brandon got there because he's incredibly stupid, even though he's a white guy. But he's to- totally bought out and, uh, and, and corrupted. So that's why he's there. So you look at anybody, none of them are there because of merit. <laughs> You, you, don't, you don't have a meritocracy when you steal the government. Okay, so, so far. So getting back to the topic of the show, because this is serious. You know, when murder standard government policy, and the reason I came up with that is because Waco was never intended to be anything other than Operation Showtime. That's what they called it, a show of force. And when the, the people that were the object of that show of force actually resisted exercising constitutional rights against uh, an illegal uh, order, you know, in other words, surrender, we don't care, we're, or we're going to shoot you and kill you. Uh, and when that force, when that force of government, the ETF, then replaced by the FBI, because the ETF is, is, is like, uh, that, that's like the gang. <laughs> so the FBI is like the organized, you know, oppressive force, and the ATF is like the gang force. <laughs> you know, that's about what I put it. I'll put it. So ATF is kind of like the MS-13 of the federal government. Um, the, the FBI would be kind of like... I want to be an organized, really bad. They'd be like the union thugs that come out and, you know, break your legs and destroy your car and things like that uh, and then kill you. <laughs> you know, so they did it for So actually, the FBI would be like the Pinkertons. That's a better example. Okay. So think of, think of the ATF as MS-13. You know, it's a gang cartel of thugs that, uh, you know, are perfectly happy to kill the Branch Davidians, bring in the tanks, the poison gas, you know, burn the place to the ground, kill everybody inside, including women and children, and then bulldoze their bodies into the ground. And that's what they did. Okay. And that was government policy. Well, obviously, it's government policy. They never changed policy. Nothing changed after Waco. They didn't do anything different. You know, these people were never disciplined. They were never brought up on charges. There was no uh, change in leadership. There was no defunding of the ATF like there should have been. So murder is government policy. I mean, what else can I conclude? All right. Same thing with COVID. COVID is the policy of killing a million Americans so that uh, rich government officials and rich people in big pharma and rich people in big tech who invest in big pharma can get richer. That's what COVID's all about. It's a marketing scheme and a bioweapon. It serves a, 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 you know, multiple purposes. But the policy of, of the COVID vaccine was death. Because if it wasn't death, then they wouldn't have put it out there. Because they knew damn well it was going to kill people. So that becomes standard policy too. So the health department is designed to kill people. The justice department is designed to kill people. Who else is designed to kill people in the federal government? I, I mean, where, where else can, what else do you conclude from that? The Department of Education is dedicated to making people stupid. The Department of Energy is dedicated to taking away all our, our uh, cheap and efficient sources of energy. The Bureau of Land Management is dedicated to destroying family farms like the Bundys. You know, I, I could go through the list. What was the Bureau of Indian Affairs do? <laughs> Reservations. Oh, there's a great system. So 
so you pick any branch of the federal government, um, the, the Department of Defense, you know, under the Brandon insurrection, under the leftists, uh, is designed to keep us at war permanently in places we are never supposed to be. Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine. These aren't wars for us to fight. In fact, the last legal war was World War II because that was the last war with the Declaration of Independence. That's when they called it the War Department. We should call it the War Department again. Defense Department, give me a break. Well, if they actually were on defense, that'd be great. So defend this country. I'm all for it. I love the military. Got no problem with that. I just don't want an offensive military going and invading other people you know, and, and changing their governments as a matter of, uh, of national policy. Pick another department. Uh, let me see what comes to mind. Actually, I recently put out a video um, and in fact, my, my latest substack uh, is a constitutional budget. So it started with an article I wrote where I take Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution and actually uh, try to assign government departments and agencies to each of those clauses. So you go to gregpenglis.substack.com. Again, gregpenglis.substack.com, G-R-E-G-P-E-N-G-L-I-S. Right? Um, and the last article I wrote is on a constitutional budget. Now, it actually has a video for all you folks that like videos that don't like to read, that would include me. <laughs> you know, I've got a video explaining the whole thing. So Article 1, Section 8, clause by clause, matching government departments with the various clauses, coming up with a budget. And this is, I do this back in 2017, so it's a little old, but the, you know, the proportions are still the same, even though the numbers are a bit different. So I came up with $1.4 trillion uh, of constitutional budget, $3 trillion of unconstitutional budget. So in, in, in 2017, the, the federal budget was um, about 30% constitutional, 70% unconstitutional. So what do you do with that $3 trillion surplus? Well, if you put it towards the national debt, $3 trillion a year, uh, now the debt's $31 trillion. You can pay it off in about 11, 12 years. Not bad. They're not going to do that, of course, because it makes sense. Um, but uh, they, you know, they'd rather focus on, on killing people. You know, I mean, that's because that's, they don't care. This is why I wrote the article, The Nation of Government. The reason I wrote the article, The Nation of Government, is because Washington, D.C. has become its own nation with its own boundaries, its own borders. It taxes the colonies, us, the states. It regulates everything. It thinks, it thinks it's supreme. In fact, I'll get later on into this case of uh, Missouri. In fact, I've got Pianca in the line right now. In Missouri, a, a, um, a federal affirmative action, um, division, equity, inclusion, whatever, judge, an Obama judge basically can, you know, completely misconstrued the Constitution, said that the federal government is supreme in all cases, that the state of Missouri cannot use the Second Amendment as it was intended to stop the government from infringing on the right of people to own and carry firearms. Uh, they said that you can't do that. So what Missouri says, it's a really fascinating case. Missouri says um, that uh, the federal government, yeah, you can pass all your laws you want, but we're not going to honor them. In fact, they specifically say that law enforcement can't enforce them. Uh, nobody in the state has to you know, abide by them because they're unconstitutional because of the Second Amendment. Well, guess who sued? The federal government. Well, who's the federal government right now? Brandon. So Brandon sues the state of Missouri and says that, uh, well, the Supremacy Clause says you can't do that. You know, we, we are, we're supreme in all cases. And that's not true. The Tenth Amendment says unless it's delegated, you know, then uh, to the federal government, they can't do it. And they certainly cannot overrule their own constitution, and they certainly cannot overrule their own constitution in the states, which are actually abiding by the constitution. It's really an interesting case. But we'll get to that. I've got Wake articles still. I've got COVID articles. This is kind of like a week to sum things up. But uh, let's go to, uh, to Pianchi, and let's see. I think he has a, a story to present or just, you know, general chat. I mean, we, like I say, we got, this is a great time for people to join us. Pianchi, good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm uh, pretty good. Uh, I'm sort of daunted by the prospect of talking for three hours, so I'm really glad you're here. 
And I got Cyanide 77 in the Netherlands. So the Netherlands is with us also uh, on live chat. So uh, now can you see live chat when you look at a show, when you look at the broadcast page? Can you see it or no? No. Oh, it's too bad. Well, I yeah, I can. I'm sorry. Yes, I can. There it okay. is. Can you see the Just commentary? To be in to, uh, to reply. Yeah. Okay. But no, you made a good point about uh, if I was to get on a airplane and seeing a black pilot, what uh-huh. comes to your mind? Well, are they there be, based well, on merit, I, or are they there based on some, you know, are they there based on uh, some equity or you know affirmative action? Uh, were the test scores were they given three hundred and ten points on the college admission before they even sit down and take the test where everybody else like Asians were deducted mm-hmm. white zero so yeah you those things sh- should come to your mind and hopefully they get away from that because actually it puts stigma on the individual yeah it's it's unfair to the black pilots that are good <laughs> you know it's unfair to the black uh, people that are good at anything. You know, um, now the difference I would say is that an airline is private, so they don't have to follow these. Well, I don't know if they do or not, but if they've got a woke management, some, I guess some airlines are worse than others. Uh, but uh, having, uh, I remember when I was going to flight school, there was a black instructor. He was great. And not because he was black, but because he was a good pilot, you know, and he wasn't there because he was black. He was there because he was a good pilot. Uh, so flying is a great equalizer, at least it used to be. You know, I don't care who you were. I had some, one of my best students was, uh, you know, a young woman in high school. You know, she requested spin training. You know, she was gutsy. And it was a great fun teaching her. Another kid from high school, another uh, young man, and he was a great student. So kids are fabulous students, you know, but, uh, but they make great pilots because these two made great pilots because they were enthusiastic. They wanted to learn. Another student who was like 75 years old, he was a great student. He loved what he was doing and he was retired. He had time. He could study all this stuff. You know, so it's it's piloting is a, is a great equalizer because it really uh, the airplane doesn't care and and the laws of physics don't care your gender, <laughs> you know they don't they don't care about your skin color. You either can fly the air, damn airplane or you can't. It's it's very simple. Um, but this is this is really unfortunate. Now, how come the the, the say the black groups, for example, don't rise up and say I don't want the stigma of affirmative action. I want to go on the merit. Are the groups doing that? Well. I would uh I don't know. I haven't I haven't heard any groups come out and say that in that well, yes I have. I have heard people like Thomas Sowell uh-huh. and others who speak against it, uh elders for instance. But uh individuals I haven't heard any individuals say it, I meant they feel it though. But, you know, it's uh, interesting. Thomas Sowell and like Shelby Steele and some of the other black commentators are getting older. Uh, where are the young, independent, black writers, classic, you know, um, patriots, you know, freedom writers, people that believe in freedom, believe in the principles of this country, you know, like freed black slaves that became uh, patriots that supported the Republican Party the way it was supposed to be. Do we have anybody like that coming along? Does anybody well, stand you out? you got Candace Owens, of course. you okay. got a lot of them, but they don't put themselves out there in the limelight hmm. where they can be attacked and ridiculed. Uh, hmm. You know, there's a lot, for instance, I listen to a lot of this new age being able to use Photoshop and other tools, how they 
like to go back into history and I claim that individuals whose skin color was not lily white and designate them as being black. Whereas in that time period, that was unheard of, designating somebody by uh, a color of this, or should I say what their skin is not. They just didn't do that. Yeah. How white is lily white? I mean, that, that expression, it's not an expression I would ever use. <laughs> I think it's funny because lilies really are white. I mean, they absolutely, you know, it's kind of funny because lilies really are white. I mean, how white is white? How white do you have to be to be lily white? Well, well it's more of a terminology. It's more of a terminology. <laughs> it's, it's derogatory. Yeah, but it's derogatory. If you're yeah. lily white, it implies you're, you've got all the strength of a flower. <laughs> you know, it's really an insulting term. You know, and whereas human beings contribute to uh, the progress that we exist in today. And uh-huh. see, really, you can, in order to study, study Einstein's theory of relativity, you have to go back and study all the scientists before him because mm-hmm. eventually he built off of what they had laid. So mm-hmm. you just, it's, you feel like starting in the middle of a book. You got to go back and study Galileo. Galileo. You got to study uh, Newton. You got to study Euclid and his, uh, his synopsis on geometry. Mm-hmm. So you just can't come into the middle of the book. You got to go back to the beginning, study them all, and because when they started, they started someplace, and when they died, they was never complete. And who came after them picked up where they left off and brought it forth onto where we are today. Sure. And we do the same thing with action radio. I mean, Einstein called it standing on the shoulders of giants. So I stand on two giant shoulders here, uh, Flimbaugh and Robin Williams. <laughs> You know, this, this is what I, uh, I think of when we do the show, because a lot of it's improv and a lot of it's really kind of wacko stuff that we come up with here. On the other hand, you know, if Rush Limbaugh hadn't paved the way for national talk shows, uh, I couldn't create uh, action radio. I don't think so. I give a lot of credit to Rush. Uh, Robin Williams, who made comedy, you know, improv comedy, raised it to such an incredible level. And the things that we talk about here on the show, I mean, we go off in some pretty wild tangents sometimes. It gets pretty funny. So I look at those two and the freedom that they both had to do what they, they did. You know, if, and if I can, you know, take from what they did and, and bring a piece of that to the show here uh, and then and then go on to any number of other you know, crusading folks, um, crusading journalists, crusading actors and actresses, crusading comedians, people that uh, that push the edges that, uh, you know, broke, broke through, you know, who's that comedian? Um, I'm trying to think of some, some, of the, some of the darker comedians, you know, in the 60s, way back when, uh, that, uh, that made a difference. And that, that's what I hope to do with Action Radio. But I could not do this if people hadn't gone before me, you know, to create talk radio and, and do the things they did in comedy, do the things they did with news. I'll say another person, um, Edward R. Murrow, you know, groundbreaking journalist, um, you know, lawyers like, uh, like the, you look at the Scopes Monkey Trial, Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryant. You know, I mean, the people that yeah, do what they Paul do, Harvey. Um, Paul Harvey, and now the news, page two, Paul Harvey. Yeah, Paul Harvey was huge. Yeah. Do I do a show like Paul Harvey? No. <laughs> but did he open up radio to millions of people for, for decades? Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's still a Paul Harvey Association. Of course, his forehead was too big. I can see why he did radio. But all these people. All these great journalists and broadcasters and talk show hosts. Uh, Lou Grant in New York, not Lou Grant. There's a there's somebody Grant uh, in New York, real gruff voice guy. 
Uh, I used to listen when I was a kid. I listened to Jerry Williams in Boston, one of the great talk show hosts. Gene Burns was another one, who uh, Libertarian Party. Gene Burns was a fabulous talk show host. Eventually ended up in San Francisco. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. But, uh, you know, I listened to all kinds of talk show hosts and take that and added to it uh, the legislative stuff, everybody from uh, Ralph Nader um, to who else is a good crusading legislator? Uh, well, Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, I mean, all these people along the way that have done things, you know, anybody who's created a, a, a good and decent law uh, has used the system to, as citizens to change the system. All those folks have an impact on this show because that's my experience. Anyway, you had a story that you told me about off the air. Uh, I'm curious about that. You want to get into that one? Oh, it was about the... Was it Uganda? Where was it? African country of Uganda. Okay. Tell me. They listen, by the way. Uganda's on our our international map, so we might as well address them. Uganda, you listening? (laughs) They're in Africa. Uh I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they passed a law. uh, Passing a law that's going to uh, outlaw a certain LGBTQ, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. And even if it goes to a certain extent, uh, it can be punishable by even death. <clears throat> so that's a sovereign country. They got a right to do what they want to, and, and they're not the first time they've been in the news. You've had a lot of internationals try to attack uh, that nation and its ability to set the principle by which it wants to rule itself. And uh, even with your uh, Obama and your Hillary Clinton. So uh, they went on. And, you know, another thing, too, uh, just reading where the governor of Iowa uh, just passed the law that restricts uh, where transgenders, the bathrooms that they can use, they have to stick to those that they were, the gender that they were assigned to at birth mm-hmm. rather than well, a male wasn't they were assigned to. I don't like the, the, the you know, I would challenge the term assigned simply because what that's that's a leftist term because what they do is then say well we're we're reassigning you know well, you're not reassigning in other words the gender the sex it wasn't even gender gender is a literary term you're like el gato you know the cat that's masculine because it's el that's Spanish el lobo you know is masculine you know la table you know that's French that's feminine because it's la instead of le so that's what gender is. Gender is, is a language uh, assignment of gender to an inanimate object. That's really what it is. Sex is what you are as male or female. And that's it. So if you say reassign, that means you were assigned in the first place uh, and, it, and your assignment can change. And so I think as, as me being the language nerd that I am, that uh, it's, it's, the gen, it's the sex you were born with, that you will be your whole life. And so we need, to, we need to make really clear that there is no such thing as transgender. You are, you are male or female. Now, you can change. You can change your body parts. You can change your organs. You can have surgery, and you can have drug therapy. And you're still going to be a male or a female. You may have the characteristics of the opposite sex, but you will never be the opposite sex. So we need to stop lying to people that there is such a thing as transgender and letting it become some kind of civil right that all the rest of us uh, have to go along with just because these people have very specific uh, issues that they need to deal with, but I don't have to pay for it. And I certainly don't want the kids, you know, ruining their lives and changing their lives perm- with permanent surgery and drugs. Anyway, sorry, I just on soapbox. So, like, mm-hmm. so our, along with, uh, I guess, I would probably be 21 or 22 states 
that has put those uh, those laws into effect. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good thing. Uh, well, they have to. Just done it, uh, the other day. Yeah. Well, see, now, 10 years ago, we never heard of transgender. It didn't exist. And so I always like to go, you know, back in history a little bit. You know, the whole term gay marriage. I mean, we, how, how many thousands of years of human history existed before the term gay marriage came about? You know, almost all of it. So why do we need that? Marriage means marriage. Marriage has meant the same thing for thousands of years. I want to keep it that way, you know. And so, but, gay, if gay people, but if gay people want to get together, I don't care. Go ahead. Right. The, the left always create new words and new definitions. Huh. <laughs> I, I just got a note from, uh, from Sinai. He said, he said, listen to this. He says, if you drop 10 women and 100 men on a secluded island, 100 years later, you will find a thriving community. Ten women and a hundred men? I don't think so, because ninety of the guys are going to kill each other for the ten women. Then he says, if you drop ten trans women and a hundred men on the same island a hundred years later, you'll find the skeletons of a hundred and ten men. <laughs> yeah, no, I would. Uh, I think you'd be better off uh, actually with uh, ten men and a hundred women, if you really want a thriving community. <laughs> Sorry, Piaggi, what do you think? Well, he had to fashion a fashion a joke some way, so he chose that way, which is cool. Yeah, well, it's, hey, Netherlands checking. Uh, let, me, let me tell you something that I heard fascinating. We're, so we're, like, we're going to be all over the place today. This is going to be great. Um, there was, uh, do you remember the, the Survival Island thing? Yeah, that was something else. Yeah, it was great. Now, what they, they did an experiment one day. They had one island of men and one island of women. <laughs> and, and here's what happened. All right, This is why uh, matriarchal societies died out. You look at most of the ancient civilizations and the ancient societies that are no longer with us, they're matriarchal. You know, a lot of Native American, uh, American Indians are, are matriarchal. Uh, and the problem with that is that there's the, you know, if you take away the, if the guys aren't leading, if it's not a patriarchal society, it's the guys that they're dreamers. It's the guys that push the boundaries. It's the guys that, uh, you know, go out and, and explore and, and do all the crazy things that guys do, but that ends up creating computers and airplanes and, you know, medicine and, uh, you know, new surgeries and all kinds of things. It, guys push that. So the innovation and, and the, the cry for freedom comes from men. It's men that are the big pushers of freedom out there. And it's always been that way. So you look at a matriarchal society, they, they usually, they, the reason they die out is because it doesn't mean they're not nurturing, doesn't mean they're not practical, doesn't mean they're not you know, loving, wonderful societies. They are, but they don't advance. They don't go anywhere. They don't do anything. They, they get comfortable in their security, and their security becomes their prison. And that's why they, they you know, eventually die out when other societies pass them by, like patriarchal. So what happened on this island it was fascinating. You can look it up and, and read about this. So the guys got organized. You know, uh, when they when they got stuck on their island, you know, they built lean tos and, and shelters and then, you know, uh, someone found water and someone else killed a boar, you know, and they were doing pretty well. And, and the women sat around, ate their provisions, you know, sunbathed and complained, <laughs> you know, come save me. Uh, some did something, but for the most part, the women were dying. I mean, they were they were doing terribly. So they said, OK, well, let's 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 switch them around. Let's let's uh, let's move them. So they moved half the women to the guy's island. They moved half the guys to the women's island. Well, the women on the guy's island wanted to be taken care of by the guys who were stupid enough to do it. <laughs> okay. So they lost half their labor force. So the guys were struggling on their islands. Uh, and the guys on the women's island were struggling too because the women still sat around, sunbathed, complained, and expected the guys to do all the work for them. Now, not in every case, and there are differences. But for the most part, that's the pattern. You can look this up. It's, it's online. Survival island. You know, the all-women island versus the all-men island. So if you really want a society to survive, 
you know, and this is why, uh, you know, after wartime, uh, it, it's amazing that uh, you look at any war, World War II, World War I, Europe. Europe is very socialistic. Europe is very feminized. Why? Because they killed off all the men. They killed off all the brave men. They killed off all the independent men. They killed off the strong men. And the people that didn't fight in World War I, World War II, uh, and the various other wars, um, they, they, were, they were back to repopulate the countries. So what do you expect is going to happen? So the men that didn't fight, the least brave, you know, the ones that were physically not in such good shape, were the only ones left. Look at Russia. You know, completely socialist, communist country. <laughs> you know, all the men died, or a lot of them. You know, am I being overgeneralized? Absolutely. But you look at the patterns, you look at the trends, and, uh, you know, men and women work best together as a team, but everybody has to pull their weight. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, a patriarchal society, completely patriarchal, isn't good either, because that's going to be exploitive and hierarchical and dictatorial, uh, and uh, the elites are going to determine what everybody else does along the way. So that's not a good society either. So you need a healthy mixture of both. But if you neglect the guys, and we said this on previous shows, if the guys don't get a chance to work, if the qualified don't rise to the top, if you don't let uh, the men, you know, if you think of all men as toxically masculine and you block all that creativity and all that inspiration, society stops moving. And when it stops moving, it's like a shark. It dies. End of speech. Well, all that has a way of working its way out because the conquering, the conquering army, when they defeat the other army, what's the first thing they go grab? They go grab the women. Yeah. 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 So so uh, I was looking at the, the something that was on the news the other day about the, the Islamic conquest of Europe and Europe trying to reclaim it. And so it's interesting that uh, now they've got a second. I mean, it's like the, <laughs> the Crusades are, have been reversed again. And so now you have all these immigrants coming up that are trying to repopulate Europe with uh, Muslims uh, as opposed to Christians, which they're trying to force out. So it's like the new crusade in, in reverse. And, and yeah, they need a new uh, a modern day Martel in Charmaine. Yeah, and I'm not familiar with those. That's more your department. So, so I'm not, I don't know who Martel is. I know who Charlemagne is, sort of. But uh, what did they do? Were they crusaders? Did they bring Christendom back? No, they Europe? rose up to expel the uh, invading Muslims, uh-huh. uh, Berbers, and Moors. Basically, oh, that's interesting. That occupied Spain, uh, occupied Southern Europe. Mm-hmm. So they rose up and expelled them after they'd been there for quite some time. Another back. What what time period was that? Oh, I would guess about sixth century BC. I may be off one way or another. No, it wouldn't be. be it wouldn't be before Christ. It'd be AD. It'd be like six hundred AD, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because I know Muhammad came after Jesus. Hundreds of years. Yeah, Islam was the last Western religion. It it came, it it sprung off of Christianity. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of Islam as a Western religion, but I never thought of it, you know, as Eastern or Western. The only division I know is that. Yeah. Well, you know, you had some existence, but you had Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And then there was some before that, too, Yahwehism. <clears throat> but uh, Islam was the last last one thus far that of notoriety, I guess you could say. Okay. So the Eastern religions would be what? Shinto, Buddhism? Buddha. I mean, the, the, who else? Which, which is more philosophy. That's what they say. 
because they're, they're considered Buddha a deity, uh, you know, a god like Jesus. Hinduism. Hindu, okay. So how about why is Hindu not a Western religion and, and Islam, why is it a Western religion? It seems to be those two. I don't think of them in terms of Eastern and Western. The only thing I think of is, is Christianity, where you have the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Church. So you've got two huge divisions of Christianity right there. Well, it's right there. Where is Saudi Arabia? Where is Arabia at? Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, well, India, Arabic India is Hindu. Yeah. Arabic really is an African language. It's just not on the continent. Then one could say before they put the Suez Canal through and cut through to uh, the Mediterranean. So, hmm. yeah. Huh. Well, Sinai says that um, Islam is a little, low, you know, under fifteen hundred years old. So this being twenty twenty three, let's just say twenty, let's just say the two thousands. So fifteen hundred years ago would be five hundred um, A.D. Huh. Okay. Well, I mean, we'll figure it out. Five hundred, six hundred. So I guess we're in the ballpark. All right, let's um, let's let's talk about some other stuff here. This is fascinating. Well, let me get to Uganda before I take a break. I'm gonna take a little break in a second. Well, I'm gonna take a few of them as we go. Um, but Uganda fascinates me. So it's uh, there's more to the story. Now, what people know of Uganda is Idi Amin, and what they know of Idi Amin, they got from uh, the movie the, the Last King from Scotland or whatever that one, where uh, Forrest Whitaker uh, played Idi Amin. That's what most people know. Uh, they might know about, the, I think, it was it Entebbe? Wasn't that raided from Uganda? The Israeli commandos went and got their people back? That was that was Uganda, wasn't it? The Entebbe raid? I don't sure. remember. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll put it to uh, Cyanide 77 in the Netherlands. <laughs> well, somebody look it up. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway, but the point was that not a lot of people know a lot about you know Uganda, and that includes me. And so I'm curious that when they come out and, you know, I guess what's the, the, the extreme is, uh, you know, probably death for, for homosexuality. But the, the Muslim countries do that all the time. You know, that's punishable by death. But what, it, what I think is the interesting part of that story is that the Obama Marxist Clinton left and the Hillary Clinton left uh, pushed, this, as, as Josie calls it, the LBGTQ PMS group which is trying to force, you know, who you sleep with as a civil right, which is not, um, not to be discriminated against, but it doesn't give you special privilege. Um, they're trying to push that through all the militaries and through all the governments and through all the foreign aid and everything else. It's like you will, will comply with these LGBTQ policies or we're not going to give you aid or military aid or things like that. So they're holding a gun to people's heads around the world with these ridiculous policies that they don't want. And what happened to the prime director? Yeah, that's, what happened uh, to that's Star Trek? Paul Howard, too. Yeah. That's, so that's why Paul, Paul Howard. And you mentioned okay. Obama, and also you got to mention the president, uh, press secretary, John Pierre. She's making, uh, she's scolding Uganda. You know, you always have these black faces in the Democratic Party that's supposed to scold and whoop all blacks into a line. And countries like uh African countries like Liberia, Zambia, Nigeria, for sure, even uh, Kenya, uh, told Obama to go to hell. Matter of fact, <laughs> he was born Kenya there. Told Obama, <laughs> yeah. if you come in here trying to tell us how to live, keep your black ass where you are. See, now that's fascinating. But see, what's interesting about Africa is that we have countries where almost everybody in the population is black. Being black is not something you can claim victimhood for. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, what percentage of, of uh, Uganda is black? What, 96, 7, I don't know, 8%? Or Kenya or, or, or Ghana or any of these countries, Nigeria, uh, any of these countries. The only country that, that I know has a lot of white people uh, would be South Africa. And the places, you know, they say in sub-Saharan Africa, but you get north, you get, know, what's, what's the opposite of sub-Saharan? Whatever, you know, the countries up north. Algeria, Morocco. Well, you go up north uh, in Egypt, 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 Libya. Yeah. You've got uh, yeah. You got Arabic, Africa. They're not yeah. black. They're Middle Eastern, right? For the most part. Well, see, then they fall into the new category of people of color. <laughs> well, I just went over the. Just I just talked about the term. I'm a person of color. I, I'm not invisible. I know that's the question that you have to ask. I mean, what is color? Actually, what is black? Yeah. Because uh, Derek Jeter, the famed shortstop of the New York Yankees, mm-hmm. he's as white as Hillary Clinton, and so his father was black. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's Lee, very Elon Musk is a uh, African, right? Yeah, he's he's an African American. <laughs> he's a white guy. Yeah. Well, uh, this is what. So, uh, in other words, what you. Um, what is it? Well, someone that comes here from Africa that immigrates to this country, I guess that makes them an, and if they're black, that makes them an African American African. I'm sorry, I'm just Yeah, but they don't classify themselves as that. They yeah. may have given away a little bit, but uh, that terminology, that word is not used to classify people. It's yeah. either uh, culture or language group. Mm-hmm. What about particular. the. Um, what about the reporter from uh, – I don't know where he's from, um, but there's, there's a reporter that hasn't had been asked a question in seven months. Uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jean-Pierre uh, refused to call on him. He, he just shouted out a question. I said, we're not going to have that here. You can't ask a question, in other words, because he's going to ask a, a real question. So to me, that's racism. You know, discriminate against the, the actual African. The actual African in the room. <laughs> you know, so, so the black American – you know, discriminates against the re- the real African, you know, um, <laughs> claiming that she's African-American, which I don't think there is such a thing unless you've actually well, been she's there. She's from Haiti. I think she's from Haiti. Oh, okay. You see she's, that so John? She's, well, she's yeah, French, look at yeah. her name. Uh-huh. Yeah, French look background. at her name. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like Duvalier. Is she related to the Duvaliers? Did her family have slaves? I'm just curious. Boy, 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 that there would be something, wouldn't it? Let's look it up. Let's look it up. This is great. No one day history. Did, did did Jean-Pierre's family own slaves? Well, I'll... I'll for, her um, to, uh, for her to elevate herself above the rest in Haiti, mm-hmm. she would have had to have some sort of uh, ties with an elite family. Sure. Right. Well, how else could somebody that stupid get to be press secretary? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put that because for my own slaves. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I call. Well, you know, I, I've renamed it diversity, equity, and inclusion to division, extortion, and idiocracy. So we, we got some. And you really want? And you really want to hear something else? Sure. What we see Donald Trump going through is racism, mm-hmm. also. Absolutely. But the thing about but Donald Trump, they're using racism against Donald Trump. Uh, there's no evidence uh, of racism, you know, and, the, you know, in fact, it's obviously made up, but they use it because they think it's effective. But what's interesting about Donald Trump is that he advanced women and allegedly people of color, if I can use that designation, you know, way more than anybody else, way more than Democrats. Democrats hate, you know, minority groups 
well, and we've talked about this before. That's why the schools are the way they are in 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 black Democrat controlled cities. You know, that's why public housing is the way it is. That's why the uh, the whole point of of keeping you know blacks a victim class is they need a victim class to do what they're doing, which is crazy. Well, so in Jean Pierre in Minneapolis, uh-huh. in Minneapolis, where the school district. And also the teachers union you know, approve that mm-hmm. they fire white teachers before they do black. So white teachers <laughs> are experiencing racism. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the Democrat Party has always been racist. They've been racist since uh, the days of slavery. The, I mean, the Democrats, the South was, you know, the Confederacy was the Democrat Party. So they, they, they are the party of slavery, the party of the KKK, the party of segregation, uh, and the party of modern segregation today. Is that nothing's changed. But here's what's interesting. Why is this guy such a threat, though? Why is, it, why is a real African, a black African, genuine you know, African citizen, you know, uh, why is he such a threat to these people? Why don't they answer his questions? Well, because he's not supposed to see a, a black American, a, a native black that's born in America uh-huh. is no not to do that, okay? But where he come from is no such limitation. Yeah. You call it what it is. Because everybody's black. So, so being black is not a big deal in a country where everybody's black. So you can't use that for or against anybody. This is why I think Africa is so fascinating. This is why we need more Africans here to say, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, where I come from, everybody's black. What's the big deal? You know, so that would be fascinating to uh, to look more into. All right, let's uh, let's take a few minutes here. I want to play a couple of things. I'll break these up as we go. See, and you know, uh, before you, no, go ahead. Before no, you walk free. away from that, before you no, walk we, away from that, we can talk more black about it. that's born in America has uh-huh. certain limitations on uh-huh. what he's supposed to say, criticize, or ridicule another black. That's why come you. That's why come you see the attention on white supremacy rather than black supremacy because there are groups out there that profess that. That's why you see less attention on black on black crime as a talking point by the uh, major media than you do on white police brutality against black. Mm-hmm. So it's certain things that uh, blacks in America, American blacks are not supposed to do. But Africans that come here they know of no such limitations. They call it what they see it. Yeah. And that's why you find somebody who's coming from the camp of the White House press secretary. Uh, <laughs> she was told not to recognize him by yep. her handlers. Yep. Which would include Barack Obama. You know, so why would Barack Obama, an allegedly African-American half, you know, man, <laughs> why would he, an alleged Christian, even though we know he's Muslim, why would he want to discriminate against a fellow black person? Well, that's what it is, because if she recognized him, then he started throwing hard questions at her. Yep. Then it presents a picture that's very hard to weasel your way out of. Yeah. So they just shut him down. It's, it's really yeah, fascinating. If it was you doing it, they would call you what? A racist. A racist, a white yeah. supremacist, and mm-hmm. using your what? Privilege. Your white mm-hmm. privilege. I wish somebody would call up and accuse me of that. Oh, please give me somebody that, that wants to challenge me you know, on, on white supremacy and white privilege and all this other white stuff. You know, I gotta, you know my story. I'm an immigrant to this country. I'm off the boat. Oh, trash truck's outside. You might hear a little bit of noise. You know, so it's I mean, just like a, like they like they mentioned with the uh, police officers that done 
the move on Mr. Nichols in Memphis is going to die. They say even though, like Maxine Waters said, even though that the police are black, they still are influenced by what? White supremacy. White supremacy. Well, see, that's the, that's the answer. This is why it's so funny to listen to these arguments that everybody is so, you know, I mean, the, their race obsession. You know, if you want to find a racist, look to the person who's talking about race the most <laughs> you know, or who brings it up first. There's your racist because that's their obsession. That's, that's their only reason for being and their only excuse for everything. But like you said before, and, and I, I absolutely agree, I'm still waiting for, for white people to get a backbone, you know, grow a pair. And stop knuckling under to this, this racist accusation. Throw it right back and say, you're the racist. Well, it's not to come because what you're doing, you're effectively pulling a rug out from under it. And this uh-huh. thing, this claim in Memphis was probably the last card that they have in their hand throw down, mm-hmm. saying that those black police officers are under the influence of white supremacy. So I could just about say there's no cards left to throw down on the table. And then they out there in never Netherland once again. See, but uh, those are bad police officers. So not that they're black police officers. They're bad police officers. You know, as far as law enforcement goes, they suck. <laughs> they had no restraint. They, they didn't, you know, follow due process. They didn't respect the, the rights of the, of the, of the accused. Uh, you know, you subdue a person, you arrest him, you bring him in. You don't beat the hell out of them. <laughs> you know? and so, well, uh, that's what the activists say they want. They want black police officers to patrol black communities because they do what? They know the culture. Oh. So the culture in black communities, if you're a child, you do wrong, you get what? You get your ass whooped. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but that's not an excuse for, for denying anybody civil rights. It's like saying, well, it's our culture. It's like those, what they call honor killings. That's one of the worst named things. Well, you know, they had to kill their daughter for, for sleeping. Well, no, the killing, because, the killing, you know, it wasn't the killing. It's not the killing. The killing okay. is, uh, is going too far. Right. But the way you patrol and the way you handle certain things, mm-hmm. you know, it would be okay for a black person to, uh, maul the head. You know. You know what mauling is. No. no well, I, mean, know I know in terms is. of an animal, but uh, not in terms of a yeah. person. Well, there's head mauling too that occurred in our culture, but it's okay for a black person to do it to another black person, but you dare not if you're white. You know, it's almost this this idea that that you know, blacks give up their, their American civil rights, constitutional rights and identity because they're doing it to another black person. That's a scary prospect. I'm surprised, you know, where's the NAACP and the ACLU? That's a horrible concept. The idea that it's okay for a black person to kill another black person, you know, like happens in all the, the gang shootings and things like that. That's fine with the Democrats, you know, which shows that they don't value black lives at all. You know, talk about black lives matter. They don't matter. <laughs> Not to these people. <laughs> if they did, then that, you well, know, that the wouldn't NAACP be allowed to happen. Is- What's that? NAACP is the recipient of a $50 million grant from Wells Fargo, who, by oh. the way, was brought up in a slavery reparations lawsuit. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'd be happy with a $50,000 grant. Works. Maybe she get, get a $50,000 grant from Wells Fargo. When I see all the money that's out there, I mean, there's so much money out there. I'm starting to, to uh, appeal to larger companies, uh, national companies things like that to see if uh, if they would like to sponsor us so that I can have a, a marketing budget. You know, what I could do, if I get a marketing budget, oh, wow, this would be, we'd be a huge show. Um, we just need to break through and just get to that, that critical mass when people start sharing it in large numbers. We'll get there. 
just a matter of time. I tell you another um, thing that's outright racist too is the uh-huh. this like this bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank that was only giving loans out to companies that was engaged in so-called green projects. Mm-hmm. Well, if somebody comes and say they wanted a project in order to uh, refine oil, and they mm-hmm. say no, then that's discrimination. So why is it that the federal government is awarding companies, rewarding companies that uh, engage in discrimination like that? Oh, same thing with electric cars. Why? Why is there federal subsidy for electric cars uh, and not one for gasoline cars? Considering that petroleum products, coal, oil, and natural gas fuel most of our power plants. So most electric exactly. cars are running on the same fuel that gasoline cars are and diesel cars are running on. It's exactly the same fuel. They just convert it to electricity first. There's no difference. It's so if you fuel. have a company that's engaged in non-green products and you refuse <laughs> to go above the $250,000 limit, with them, but you will go above the $250,000 limit with a mm-hmm. green product company. That's discrimination that the it federal is. government is not supposed to engage in. Yep. It's all discrimination against anybody who does not have $250,000 to bail out people to do. So anytime you have more than $250,000, that money should be just lost. That's just bad investing in stupidity. See, if we had a free market, you wouldn't have green policies if we had a free market. Because they don't work. And, and I posted this on Facebook recently, too, that if you remember back in the 80s, you remember socially responsible investing? It's exactly the same thing as what's going on today with uh, uh, environmental, social, uh, government stuff, ESG. ESG is nothing more than a rewording of socially responsible investing. Just as climate change is a rewording of global, uh, global warming, you know, I mean, it's just, which is a rewording of socialism because <laughs> they all have the same solutions. It's exactly the same thing. They just put different names on it. It's no different. Well, see, this you know, administration the, and left will uh-huh. reward you for being unaccountable. Like mm. you said, if you got an account that's over $250,000, you know that the FDIC limits your insurance to $250,000. Mm-hmm. Well, you're being unaccountable. And Janice Yeltsin say, well, uh, you won't lose any money. So what you're doing is you're supporting and in, 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 uh, supporting un- p- people, a company that's unaccountable. Mm-hmm. Well, you do the huh. same thing in other areas, too, like you want to uh, pay off student loans. Well, the best way to pay off student loans is to get a job in the degree that you made the loans toward and pay the loan off. Anything other than that is showing unaccountability, which is being supported by this administration. Right. Well, the free market works. You know, this is saying that I absolutely believe in that it's it's uh, socialism for the rich and, and capitalism for the poor, or in other words, a free market. So if you're a small business, middle-sized business, you know, and you fail, that's your problem. If you're a large business that engages in woke policies and leftism and stuff that the, the current Marxists approve of, you get bailed out. I mean, it's just that simple. You know, electric car companies get bailed out, whereas other car companies might go broke. You know, the innovative, you know, and it's not all gasoline. Gasoline is a perfectly good uh, product. comes from the earth. It's organic, and it breaks up into natural compounds. It's not like they're adding, you know, man-made isotopes and created weird stuff that they put in. You know, like they do with food. You know, if you have genetic, genetically modified food, high fructose corn syrup, all these additives, sodium benzoate, 
all these things they put in food, that's unnatural. Those are, those are human chemicals that they've, they put in. That makes it unnatural. Right? Same thing with oil. Oil is a natural product until they add a bunch of stuff to it. So it's, uh, th- these, are these natural things that come out of the earth can be burned, uh, and the compounds are carbon dioxide and oxygen. I mean, carbon dioxide and water vapor. Those are the two main components when you burn gasoline. That's what they break down into. Oxygen, you know, they're hydrocarbons that add oxygen when mixed with air, creating, creating a combustible, you know, um, basically a carbohydrate, <laughs> carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and they break into carbon dioxide and uh, water vapor. Well, water vapor goes into clouds and carbon dioxide goes into plants. What's the problem? They're not pollutants. They're, they're, they're nutritional for the planet. But people don't see it that way because they've been brainwashed. Anyway, let's... Uh, I want to talk about COVID and, and Waco. Uh, we haven't really analyzed those for, for well, we have, but uh, especially Waco. Coming up on the 30th anniversary of Waco, notice how much is in the news. <laughs> like, not at all. So 7.56, I'm going to write my time down here. We're going to take a break, play a couple of things, and I'll be right back with, uh, uh, I don't know what I'll be right back with. I haven't decided yet, but I've got a bunch of stories we're going to talk about. Hopefully, Pianchi can stick around for a long time today, which would be great. I haven't talked to you all week. I missed your, missed your calls. Well, I think Monday. All right, let's play stuff, and I'll be right back. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida, right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stars Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stars Automotive. I go there. You should, too. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't, which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care, 
And now as an affiliate of Grave Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Grave Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical efficacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is gravecare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at gravecare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Grave Care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take, that is Action Radio. And I'm back. I got Pianki in the line. I've got Cyanide 77 on the live chat uh, in the Netherlands, who's taking a break right now. <laughs> I need a first name for you, dude, <laughs> in the Netherlands. I, I don't like saying Cyanide on the radio all the time, even though it's spelled S-C-I-E-N-I-D-E 77. Uh, you know, you've, you've got to have a first name. So if you don't mind giving that, then uh, that's cool. Anyway, he's got a, he's got on it. They're, apparently, they're taking a break right now in the Netherlands for Vly. <laughs> and I don't know what Vly is, but I'm about to find out. Variations exist through the Netherlands, Belgium, and areas of the German state. A fly usually, it is a, uh, what is it? Uh, I guess it's pie. <laughs> so, fly pie. <laughs> this is kind of interesting. So, a fly is often eaten on special occasions and for significant life events. It looks like a, a pie with a waffle you know, crust on top. It's kind of like this crisscross uh, uh, pastry. Interesting, though. So, anyway, so uh, Cyanide 77 is on a fly break right now uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, so, he'll, he'll be back. Must be tough work in there in the European. Uh, <laughs> Socialist work world. And it's kind of funny. We talked about the four day week yesterday with uh, CJ, which is interesting too. I, I absolutely believe in that. And I just want to make one announcement. The, um, the lawyers conference that's going on in Atlanta uh, to deal with COVID litigation uh, is missing two key components. One is our bill on vaccine product liability. And the second is our bill to end big tech censorship. I've talked to lawyers. I've talked to we had Jeff Childers we had on. I've talked to Dr. Peter McCullough about these bills. I've talked to Dr. Robert Malone about these bills, all of whom are going to be there uh, at this lawyers conference. And not one of them has gotten back to me saying, yes, we're going to talk about vaccine product liability legislation and big tech legislation. So I should be there, but I'm not because I didn't get an invite. Uh, And so uh, once again, a perfectly good, uh, a perfect opportunity to discuss uh, and lobby for vaccine product liability on big pharma and ending big tech censorship in very simple bills, very straightforward, using lawyers and liability, which is what they do to get multi-billion dollar settlements that you think they'd be interested in, as well as doing the right thing. Um, they're not even talking about it. That to me is staggering. 
you know, and not just, you know, you know, pouting here and throwing a, a you know, a, 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 a petty little uh, tantrum here. This is serious. The fact that they're holding a conference about COVID litigation and the two bills that would help them the most and help them immediately, they're not even talking about? That is just idiocy to me. Oh, I guess I'm not a big enough name yet. Maybe that's it. You know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you know, I, I need to get to climb up in the, uh, you know, the, in, in the conservative diversity, inclusion, and person of character. <laughs> Pianki, what do you think the problem is? Why, why would they just take up our legislation? I mean, it works. No, no lawyer has ever said it's, it's uh, what we're doing is, is not going to work, is illegal, is, is hard to, uh, uh, the only thing that's hard to accomplish is to get it passed, but there's nothing in our bills that anybody has ever said is wrong. I find that fascinating. And yet they won't take them up. I don't know. No. I don't know. You know, it's like uh, we talked about with CJ today where, where the complaining, raising complaining to an art form where the adrenaline rush of complaining and getting all stewed up would be ruined if they actually did something about it. That to me is, 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 is that's one of the definitions of insanity. Knowing the solution, refusing to deal with it because you'd rather complain about it. That just I don't get that. All right, so I got a few articles for you here. Um, the, apparently, all the things that we knew were true are now being proven. And so one of the first is this article by we're going to go COVID Waco COVID Waco. Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll do COVID this hour Waco next hour. I haven't decided. But this is from March 22nd, so two days was it? Today's 24th, two days ago. Horowitz, Daniel Horowitz, who said they knew Freedom of Information Act document shows government anticipated mass vaccine injuries, then observed them from day one. So what we knew, they knew, uh, they knew, <laughs> you know, and now it's proven that they knew what we knew, they knew. You still with me? Oh, <laughs> Robin Williams there. All right. The article says nobody disagrees at this point that there is a plethora or plethora, depending on how you of excess deaths and a dearth of births, in other words, shortage, a trend that should be the number one alarming public policy issue. Yet when any of us suggest that the gene therapy ubiquitously given to the world right around the time of the jump in these numbers might be responsible, people look at us like we are from Mars. However, it turns out, based on newly released Freedom of Information uh, Act documents from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, that our government knew about and even anticipated massive reports of injuries from these shots from day one. Why do you think they maintain the liability uh, immunity for big pharma? You know, because they want to make the money. See, see, the way that the government makes money from this is royalties, license fees, and things like that because of the Bayh-Dole Act, which came before the liability uh, removal uh, by Ronald Reagan. So the Bayh-Dole, I think, was during Nixon's time. Um, no, I think no Carter signed that bill into law. So anyway, so the government makes money off things they produce, uh, which is different than like if you work for a government, if you work for a corporation and you produce something under license for the corporation. Now, did Thomas Edison work exclusively on the light bulb? No, he had a bunch of workers, but those workers were under contract to turn their work over to him. So he's thought of as the inventor of the light bulb, but he did not individually test a thousand light bulbs and come up with the filaments and do all the plans and things like that. No, he had help. You think all those things that, that came out of the labs, all the phone technology was done by one person at the top? No, it was done by, a whole, by entire Bell Laboratories. But those people signed a contract saying that they would not personally profit, nor could they license, nor could they patent the devices that they had developed for um, Bell Labs under contract to AT&T or, or Ma Bell, the phone company. <laughs> you know? So why should government be able to do what private industry can't do? Why should government people like Dr. Fascist and all the other health Nazis 
at the NIH, CDC, whatever, who are developing uh, new technologies and drugs on taxpayer dollars, uh, be able to then profit from that above their salaries by licensing them to uh, big pharma. That's insane. And yet it's the law of the land. So that's what allows this nonsense to happen. So anyway, he says, so Harwood says, throughout the past two years, government and media concocted a conspiracy theory that somehow the CDC's own VAERS, that's the vaccine agency something um, erroneous. You know. Anyway, it's a system where you report injuries. <laughs> okay. Reporting is scammed with fraud by people who have nothing better to do with their lives but spend hours filling out fraudulent vaccine, vaccine injury reports. Yeah. That's not true. They, yeah, we don't have that kind of time, folks. They pretend it's a sort of ex post facto, in other words, after the fact, uh, anomaly that nobody expected and that, no credibi- that has no credibility in their eyes. Except as Hebrew University professor Josh Gwitzkow reveals, not only did the CDC know about the vaccine injuries blowing up the VAERS uh, at record levels, even before the general public had access to them, the agency contracted with defense contractor General Dynamics to handle the database in anticipation of record use. So VAERS is the Vaccine uh, Injury Reporting System. I don't know exactly what, what VAERS stands for. So, the, so this is new. This is, this is new information. The General Dynamics military contractor, well, it makes sense. The DOD was in on the creation of COVID anyway. So why wouldn't you have the Department of Defense um, in on the cover-up? That makes sense. It says then when vaccines were released, the CDC had, uh, had to up the contract to account for even more entries, yet showed no moral qualms about continuing with the campaign without disclosing these revelations to the public. In other words, every time they said it was effective, they knew it was dangerous and useless. <laughs> you know, uh, that to me is criminal. You know, and then they talk about uh, Trump lying, <laughs> you know, and impeaching him. This is the greatest lie, one of the greatest lies in world history, that the vaccine is safe and effective. You know, it's not. And they always knew it wasn't. And now we have proof that they knew it wasn't. And that's what makes it even worse. He says, Gutzkow, G-U-E-T-Z-K-O-W. doesn't sound very Jewish, but that's okay. Gutzkow, who has, has secured numerous FOIA documents, that's F-O-I-A. Uh, they call it a FOIA, which is uh, a pronunciation Freedom of Information Act, F-O-I-A acronym. So FOIA documents, both in the U.S. and Israel, throughout COVID posted 69 pages of FOIA documents and contracts from General Dynamics Information Technology to the CDC's Immunization Safety Office. Hmm. Yeah, you know, we call, uh, whenever you, you combine industry with government into a single entity, that's called fascism, just to let you know. Then it says, thanks to his work, we already know from the previous FOIA documents that the CDC's $9.45 million contract with General Dynamics in August 2020 stated that officials anticipated 1,000 adverse events, in other words, injuries, uh, reports per day, with 40% of them being serious. Mm-hmm. And as we know, only about 1% of the actual injuries get reported to the vaccine injury system, which is really scary. So, it, it, you know, 1,000 a day, if that's 1%, we're talking about uh, a million, you know, a day um, adverse events. An adverse event can any be, be any reaction to it. So if only 1% are reporting, that 1,000 makes a million, I think, if I did my math right. Anyway, it says, uh, yet uh, like a cold serial killer soullessly counting its casualty list, the CDC was completely you know, fine with, with this campaign as if it were the price that had to be paid to worship the spirit of the age, the modern day Moloch. And I'm not sure what a Moloch is. Maybe uh, Pianchi knows. However, this document shows that as early as, almost on Pianchi, as January 15th, when most people still could have avoided these shots, January 15th, right? Most people could have avoided these shots. The CDC was aware of record-setting reports that crushed even the agency's initial cold-hearted, morbid expectations. 
Pianchi? Well, you have seen some wrangling going around to enrich a few people with mm-hmm. this COVID. COVID was uh, right. one of those things. Well, what it, what it says is what I said in my title of my show, that, that, that murder is, you know, standard government policy. They don't care. You know, they, they get their power through the mandates. They get their money uh, through licenses and fees. Big Pharma gets their money because they're not liable for anything. Uh, and the entire cost of production, research, development, transportation, manufacture, and distribution is paid for by the taxpayers. All they have to do is make the stuff and make the profits. And they don't have to say what's in it. And they're not responsible for what happens after people take it. It's really an amazing system. It's like the world's greatest crime. And we lost a million people over this for no reason. Because as I went over the math the other day, I, can, I should probably just do it in my head. It's easier to explain. A million people approximately died allegedly you know, from COVID, but they didn't die from COVID. They died with COVID. Only 6%, I'll do 5% to make my math easier, only 5% actually died from COVID. Well, 5% of a million, you know, 10% is 100,000, so 5% is 50,000. Of those 50,000, Dr. Zelenko and other doctors have said that we could have saved about 90% of them with early treatments. So the, so the 50,000 people that died, you know, 10% of that is 5,000. Uh, and so uh, they could have saved all but about 5,000 people. If you do the math a little better, actually it worked out about 6,000 the way I figured it out on a calculator. So it's only about 6,000 people should have died from COVID, from COVID. Everybody else should have been saved with early treatments. Well, 6,000 people is not a pandemic. We lose, what, 80 to 100,000 a year just to the regular flu? We don't call that a pandemic. Anyway, so COVID is completely overblown. Most people get it, don't know it. I had articles I went over earlier this week that both Republicans and Democrats were briefed that everybody's going to be exposed to it. Um, Dr. Harvey Rich said hydroxychloroquine works, and there's no reason not to use it. Early treatments work. He's the epidemiologist professor. He teaches epidemiologists. He's at Yale. I've been in contact with him. Uh, other articles uh, talked about uh, you can lock down or not lock down. It doesn't make a damn bit of difference to the virus. It still has the same life cycle. Another article said that herd immunity is the best, fastest way to stop it. And I'm not talking vaccines. I'm talking about natural herd immunity would stop, stops most viruses in about, uh, you know, two or three months. The CDC chart I had proved, the chart that I put in my Substack article, the chart that proves that uh, COVID died uh, mid-July 2020. It's right there. That's when they switched to cases and, and uh, did everything else. And another article says that everything they've done, which is my contention, everything they did uh, during COVID was to save COVID, to save it until their, their non-vaccine vaccine came out. Lockdowns, masks, isolation, stress, ruining family businesses, you know, total panic, total fear is all designed to preserve the virus. Stop it. They could have stopped it easily. Well, that's murder by government policy. You know, standard operating procedure. Kill it's okay. As long as the government survives, the nation of government in Washington survives, it doesn't matter what happens to the rest of the country, as long as the money keeps coming in. Pretty much like the British monarchy, you know, in the 1700s. Pianchi? We'll get to another article. Mid-2020 is about right. Well, I got the chart to prove it. You know, the chart's very simple. It's, it shows, it's just go to, if you go to gregpenglis.substack.com, you can check it out right now. You go there and, and scroll down to my article um, that says, oh, uh, Cyanide 77 is back. Dude, I need a first name for you. I don't want to keep saying Cyanide 77. Whatever your first, you can make up a first name. I don't care. I just want to call you something else. Anyway, no, the CDC chart, uh, you can't find it anymore. I've got it. 
<laughs> you know, but you can't find it. Uh, but it's out. But uh, for those of us that uh, saved a lot of this stuff, and I saved stuff all the way along, all the way along the process, I have all these wonderful early COVID articles. So when the FBI steals my computer, I won't have those articles anymore. But they're in my head, <laughs> you know. Anyway, but uh, and other people are going to have them. So everybody should go out and download uh, Marco. All right, good. Doesn't sound like a very Dutch name, Marco, but that's okay. Shows what I know. Um, but you know, everybody should download on all your computers, as many as you can, download articles on COVID between February and July of 2020. Because that's when the truth was still out there. After that, it was just gone. You don't find these articles that said there is no pandemic, that Fauci's an idiot, that he's caused a panic, that masks don't work, that lockdowns don't do anything. All this stuff was out there in the early parts of, uh, of COVID. And then it just disappeared when Dr. Fascist took over for President Trump. That's the problem. Got another article, but before I do that, I want to check in with Pianchi and Marco in the Netherlands. I kind of like that. Marco in the Netherlands. It's got a good ring to it. All right, dude. Here we go. Pianchi, any reaction or should I give you another article? Give me another article. All right. This one's from LifeSite. Uh, this is Profits Over Protocol. NIH collusion with Big Pharma is driving the COVID jab rollout. This is from, get you a date here, uh, Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. So three days ago. And what it says is public health. Here's the subtitle. Public health is literally being sacrificed for profit. And since government agencies are in on it, there's no one left to look out for public's interest. Yeah. When the government becomes the, the, the profit maker and the, and the murderer, who's going to prosecute the government? They don't prosecute themselves. This is from Dr. Mercola. In late February 2023, Moderna agreed to pay $400 million to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, that's the NIAID, headed up by one Dr. Fascist, for the patent it holds on Moderna's messenger RNA shot. February 2023. Uh, I wonder why they paid again. That's interesting. This is the patent process is part of the COVID messenger RNA shots that the media haven't really addressed and people in general don't know anything about, probably because it's a total racket. Based on internal documents and correspondence, it appears the NIAID funded the creation of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, at the same time, it patented and receives royalty payments for the vaccine against said virus. I think that date's wrong. I don't think it was late February 2023. Moderna agreed to pay $400 million uh, to NIAID. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. No, I see. Okay, so here's what happened. So the NIAID, in other words, the government held the patent. And Moderna, which makes the stuff, paid for the patent a month ago. That's fascinating. So it says, the, it appears the NIAID funded the creation of SARS-CoV-2. That would be gain of function. That's uh, Ralph Barrick in North Carolina and then the Wuhan lab when they couldn't you know, do it here anymore. Uh, that's where all our money went. Then it says, at the same time, it patented and receives royalty payments for the vaccine against said virus. So they, get, uh, paid, they, they paid for, um, I guess, the rights to the, uh, the vaccine, and they get royalties on top of that. Hmm. Interesting. Royalties are where you get paid when you don't have the rights to something. Like authors, when they sell their rights to a publisher, they get paid royalties. They still get paid for their work, and they still hold the copyright. Nobody can change it. But the rights to, to, to distribute it and sell it go to the publisher. That's how it works. And authors do this exchange for getting published. Then it says that, um, the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, is supposed to be the primary government agency responsible for public health research. But by the looks of it, it appears instead to be in the business of creating public health threats in order to profit from them. Yeah, bioweapon, right? So you scare the hell of the public, and then you mandate uh, the cure that you've already designed, you know, after you've already designed the virus. It says in the agency itself, 
uh, isn't uh, the only one raking in profits. Many patents are held by individuals working with the NIH, NIAID, that'd be Dr. Fascist. So taxpayers fund research that may or may not work out, while Big Pharma, the NIH, and the individuals at the NIH, in other words, the health Nazis, uh, profit from products that end up on the market. That is a clear conflict of interest and can hurt public health in any number of ways. And this to the starters, it incentivizes the NIH to support and promote potentially dangerous drugs, as we've clearly seen during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, remdesivir. So, so the government promotes the drugs that kill people, and they don't care because they got so much money, you know, for the deaths of COVID over people that are cured. There's no money in curing people for the government. There's only money in killing people. Fascinating. The NIH also has a significant stake in regulations that impact patents and vaccine mandates and may use its influence to benefit itself rather than the public. So in other words, big government gets paid because the licenses, royalties, and patents that they own, that they're not supposed to own. But that's done by legislation in Congress. Big Pharma gets paid billions because they don't have any responsibility or liability, so they don't have to have a legal department. You know, and all the manufacturing, research, development, marketing, advertising, um, production, transportation, storage is all paid for by the taxpayers. So they don't have any cost. All they get is profit. Well, no wonder there are problems. <laughs> Pianchi. Yeah, I wonder where that money that they get paid from goes to. Well, Dr. Fascist has some. Uh, $10 million that, uh, remember the congressman that found in a county head? He gets paid $450,000 a year. At least he did when he was uh, still, you know, stealing from the government. In other words, working for him. But he, on top of that, he got royalties, licenses. I mean, his real money, his real money was in, um, was in licensing and patenting and uh, uh, selling products because he could do that under the Buy Dole Act signed by Jimmy Carter. Great move, Jimmy. <laughs> that sucked. So that's where he makes his money from. He doesn't make his... And in fact, he, he's so corrupt. I wonder if he's ever seen a patient. See, that'd be the first question I'd ask. If he was before me as a member of Congress, I'd say, have you ever seen a patient? Of course, the answer, I, I'm pretty sure the answer is no. Because he went straight from college where he got his medical degree. He went straight into government uh, labs. And then, uh, you know, weaseled his way to running the NIAID, infectious diseases, when the guy doesn't even have a virology degree. He's got a basic MD. He's a bureaucrat. He hands out grant money to produce things that he wants that he can then license and, and get royalties for. Um, and then it gets the kick on it. It's fascinating. You know, it's, 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 uh, you can't lose. <laughs> anyway. So I got other, I want to get on the Waco. Uh, totally, totally different um, thing that's going on here. So anything else on, on uh, and we'll get to some of the early COVID articles, which I think are more fascinating. Those two are okay, but we kind of knew that, so that's not really breaking news. Uh, I got better stuff coming up later. Any comments on that before we get to Waco? What do you think of Waco, what, the, or the lack of coverage? The fact the government goes in, gasses and burns an entire community, kills them all, uh, prevented those from escaping by shooting as they tried to climb out the windows, forcing them back inside so they died from the fire. That's our government. That was standard operating procedure. That was policy. And no one's been held accounts for that. And that anniversary is coming up April 19th, so next month, three weeks from now. Pianchi? Yeah, that was murder. Where's Derek? Derek going to be in today? Derek's on vacation. Stockton for it. Yeah, don't have one. Can't do it without Derek. Derek. Derek's out of here. <laughs> you know, he's, in, he's in a secret undisclosed location. But he's not, he's not able and, not wanting, and he shouldn't call in, actually. He should, be, he should keep doing what he's doing. But, uh, yeah. Derek's, Derek's not here. Um, 
Candace isn't here either. She has uh, something to take care of today also. So beyond the journey um, with Candace, Cowgirl Candace. Hard to say. Cowgirl Candace. There we go. Anyway, so she's out today too. So it's just me. Actually, just you and me. And uh, Marco in the Netherlands. So it's just three of us. Unless anybody else calls in or texts in. Anyway, let me get to Waco. So Waco to me is the, is the example of a government, so, uh, I wouldn't say a holocaust, but it's like a, certainly a massacre. Those people were killed. But it's the first example to me that our own government could be every bit as evil as the Nazis, the fascists in Italy, the communists in Russia and China, uh, the dictators in, uh, in Cambodia and Cuba. It was evidence to me that there's no difference between our government and their governments when they can do something like Waco. And so that's when I realized back in 1993 that uh, our, our federal government was too big, too tyrannical, and was capable of anything. They can send tank, tanks in and poison gas against American citizens. They can do anything. And they've been allowed to get away with it, and that's why it keeps getting worse. I mean, what's the difference between killing a million people with a, a non-vaccine uh, and killing, you know, 80 or 90 people in Waco? Well, it's just the numbers are the only difference. But the attitude's still the same. You know, killing becomes government policy. So I found an article. This is actually from CBS News. FBI agents on scene of Waco standoff reveal new details about the deadly 1993 siege. This is total propaganda. That's why I chose it. And Began, B-E-A-G-A-N, February 26th, uh, 20, February 28th, 2023, so last month. It says, retired FBI special agent turned producer and vegan <laughs> special agent. Okay, right. So she works for the FBI. So, 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 so an FBI special agent who might have been even, I don't know if she's at Waco or not, uh, reports on Waco from the FBI point of view to CBS News. And you think you're going to get an unbiased opinion? Oh, please. Special agent turned producer Ann Began served 23 years in the FBI and is the co-creator and executive producer of the new Paramount docuseries FBI True, which would probably tell FBI a lie. <laughs> but that's just me. She says, until 1993, the word Waco brought to mind a Texas city located along the Brazos River, a popular setting for numerous fictional sagas about cattle ranchers, yada, yada, yada. But in 1993, a deadly 52-day conflict between the FBI and the Branch Davidians displaced this historical narrative. Waco became the location of the most intense gun battle in American law enforcement history. Well, let's ask the first question. Why was, why was law enforcement uh, engaging in a gun battle? What position did they put themselves in to cause people to shoot at them? <laughs> well, they were trying to kill them. <laughs> they sent in all kinds of troops. And they'd even been tipped off a, day ahead of, a couple of days ahead of time that the FBI was coming. What would you do? It says 30 years ago this month, uh, federal agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms attempted to serve a lawfully obtained federal search and arrest warrant on David Koresh. Well, then if they obtained a lawfully uh, obtained search warrant, why didn't they serve it in a lawful manner? Call them up. Hey, David, you want to come down? Or call the local sheriff. Hey, David, we need to talk to you. Oh, okay. He used to do that. The sheriff would talk to him all the time. But this is why this is such propaganda, because it's all FBI good, all Branch Davidians bad. So this is David Koresh, leader of the Branch Davidian religious sect at the group's compound, not community, not home, compound, in the small community of Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel outside Waco. The ACF agents were met with an extraordinary barrage of gunfire. Well, that's BS because they shot first. <laughs> that's what all the reports say. Then it says four agents and several Branch Davidians were killed. Well, how did that happen? Why didn't they call off the, the shooting? Why didn't they just back off? So wait a minute. No, no gunfire. We're, we're just going to sit out here. We're going to talk. But they didn't do that. 
They went in guns blazing, right? Then it says the remaining occupants in the compound refused to exit. Well, that's not true either. <laughs> they, uh, you know, when they tried to leave, uh, they, first of all, the, the fire department, I know, was told not to show up when the fire started. And this is later on in the siege. Uh, a lot of them were, some people were let out, some people were released, some people, you know, just got out. Uh, but a lot of people, when they tried to escape, you know, were shot at and had to, were forced back in the building. Then it says, since an assault on a federal agent falls under the purview of the FBI, the Bureau assumed jurisdiction. In other words, the ATF was so incompetent, so dangerous, so destructive, and so quick to shoot that the, that the FBI had to take over. Well, that's what really happened, right? Then it says, for 52 days, Koresh, a self-proclaimed messiah, had to throw that in, right? And his followers rebuffed orders for a peaceful resolution. Oh, really? You put tanks, poison gas, an entire siege, you play loud music, you shine bright lights in, you torture these people for 51 days and call it uh, a peaceful, and then you say you want a peaceful resolution? Nothing they did was peaceful. This is fascinating. Then it says, as the days wore on, Koresh produced, prolonged the siege, uh, debating with authorities about his interpretations of the Bible, specifically the book of Revelations. Yeah, he did that. He talked to them. But just because you're a little kooky, which I think David Koresh was, does that mean you go in and kill everybody? Anyway. It says, in the end, peaceful means did not succeed. <laughs> so on April 1993, as the FBI hostage rescue team moved ahead with a plan to breach the compound. So, what was the, so w- which hostages were they rescuing? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you know, if you're rescuing, you don't breach the compound. You actually get people out. Then it says, flames erupted in multiple locations. Well, what the story doesn't say was they sent the tanks in. They, uh, they pu- punched holes in the, in the, in the uh, community so that the wind would whistle through. They pumped in an extremely flammable poison gas that was only used outside, CS gas, uh, and then they fired in pyrotechnic devices to cause a fire. That's their peaceful resolution? Anyway, that's pure propaganda. I've had enough of this nonsense. Pianchi, the story never seems they to get told They use flamethrowers like they did in World War II? Do they use which now? They use flamethrowers like they did in World War II. No. Oh, there's the market. No, I don't know any evidence of flamethrowers, but they didn't have to. They pump in a poison gas. They open the, the, the door so the, the, the air will aerate the fire. Uh, they create all the conditions for, uh, for uh, an inferno. Uh, and then it looks like they fired in uh, various pyrotechnic devices for them um, that were extremely flammable when they blew up because they're pyrotechnic devices. They're flashbang grenades. Uh, and uh, all that, that was the spark that was needed to cause the fires, and the rest is history. And then, as I understand also from other documentaries, the fire department was, ref- was refused entry to, to put the fires out. So they, always, they intended to kill them. I mean, it's just that simple. Let me give you another That's point. That's what it sounds like to me. Those families need to receive reparations. Well, yeah, but see, they were all bulldozed into the ground because we had to heal, as Bill Clinton said. I want Bill Clinton on trial for this. He's never had to answer for it. I want to know where Merrick Garland was. I can't find out. Chris Ray, I investigated him. He was too young for this. He wasn't uh, in the FBI yet. He was in college when this was going on, or somewhere. He was. He was. He wasn't in government service yet. So, so he's got an alibi. But Merrick Garland's older. He's seventy something. So, you, I bet you he was there, or as one of the commanders. Anyway, this is this is from the New American. This is Waco after twenty years. A warning against unrestrained government. Thomas R. Edlem, E D D L E M, April nineteenth, twenty thirteen. So this is April nineteenth. This is this is one of the anniversaries of the of the uh, the government uh, massacre at uh, or the Clinton massacre at Waco. He says April nineteenth marks the twentieth anniversary of Waco, Texas, uh, the massacre of the Branch Davidian Church members at the organization Carmel. He says compound, which is a mistake. Anyway, some eighty-two Davidians, including twenty-six children and four ATF agents, were killed in two related episodes. A February 28th military-style assault 
by 100 ATF agents in an April 19th fire after a six-week standoff provoked by the FBI. It's amazing the differences in how this is described, right? He says, the Waco massacre, that's what I call it, so I guess, I guess I'm in good company. The Waco massacre ranks amongst the largest mass killings of American citizens in its own government. 19th century Indian massacres, such as Wounded Knee, the Dakota Sioux War of 1862, and the Trail of Tears. The massacre began in a February 28th raid by ATF officials on the compound where the Davidians lived. I'll say compound because he does. The Davidians were ready, for, were ready for the ATF. Four ATF agents were killed and another 16 injured, and the ATF was repulsed from the Mount Carmel Center compound. Six Davidians, a Seventh-day Adventist splinter group, were also reportedly killed in the February 28th melee. So, so much for the, the, uh, the lawful serving of a search warrant. When 100 agents with guns go in, that's an army. That's an invasion. That's not serving a search warrant. Right? He says the raid was the result of ATF allegations that the Davidians' leader, David Koresh, also known by his birth name, Vernon Howell, had modified legally purchased AR-15 military-style rifles to fully automatic status. By the way, that's legal under the Second Amendment, folks. And then, but it's a federal crime. So the, the, the crime is what's illegal. What was the not sheriff in? What's that? Well, that yeah. well, he was barred from going in, as far as I know. I don't know. I'll see if I can get you a quote from a source here. But as far as I know, the sheriff never appeared on the scene. The sheriff was never allowed to contact David Koresh. The sheriff never uh, went in and said, people, back off. This is crazy. What are you doing here? See, my plan at the time, you know, when I was thinking of this, uh, I would have, if I was in a position to do so, you know, I would have gotten a, a rifle and, and gotten, you know, uh, about 10,000 militia people together and surrounded the ATF, the FBI, and said, just stop what you're doing, back off, leave, let the situation defeat you, and then talk to, to uh, Koresh and other folks. And they say, well, you can't that he was molesting children and, uh, you know, making machine guns. Well, molesting children is illegal, but that's just an allegation. I don't know if it was ever proven. Uh, it was proven that he had uh, children with a lot of the women there, but that's a cult. That's just kind of stupid. Yeah, I don't think it, yeah, and it's illegal, illegal under bigamy laws, but you don't execute people for that. Anyway, um, but th- this was Operation Showtime. This was the ATF wanting to look tough and showing how tough the Clinton administration was and how they hate guns. So it's legal under the Second Amendment to have machine guns because they're arms. So making a federal law against something that's legal is illegal. So the federal law was illegal. So you can't charge people with a law that itself is illegal, and yet that's what the government does all the time. He says the Davidians were ready for the ATF. For, okay, I read that. Then it says the raid was the result of ATF allegations that the Davidians' leader, Koresh, okay, had, oh, here, I read that too, modified legally purchased AR-15-style rifles. They call them AR-15 military-style rifles, but they're not military rifles. It's a fully automatic status, which they say is a federal crime. The FBI later concluded that the Davidians had modified 48 firearms to fire in fully automatic mode and that they had also 21 silencers and a number of practice hand grenades. Practice. That probably means inert and dead. Well, how would they know they had 48 firearms if they didn't have spies there? Which apparently they did. So they had insiders there. So they did what they did to uh, uh, the, the, the folks that uh, they inspired to, to uh, this, this alleged kidnapping plot of, of uh, you know, Jim Widmer, the governor of, uh, of Michigan. It was proven to be her complete entrapment by the feds. Uh, Ray Epps, who helped organize uh, the, the walk-in, the Capitol Hill Invitational walk-in um, by the FBI on January 6th. So the FBI is a terrible organization and needs to be disbanded immediately. Anyway, since Koresh had been the subject of a series of articles in the Waco Tribune Herald uh, beginning the day before the February 28th raid, the paper quoted former Davidians who claimed firearms violations as well as polygamy and child molestation by Koresh. 
course, they left the organization. They, they, they could say anything they wanted. The series began with allegations. All right. Uh, okay, this is about it. Uh, oh, here we go. Let's get to uh, more interesting stuff here. The ATF's raid was initiated in advance of anticipated annual March budget hearings in Congress. Let me say that again. The ATF raid was initiated in advance of anticipated annual March budget hearings. So the ATF made a raid so they could get more money. All right. Then it says, and Mike Wallace of CBS 60 Minutes noted in a May 23rd, 1993 broadcast after the end of the siege that almost all the agents we talked to said they believed the initial attack on the cult in Waco was a publicity stunt, the main goal of which was to improve ATF's tarnish image. That's why they call it Operation Showtime. The ATF was trying to rehabilitate its horrible image, and they did it in the worst possible way. They wanted to stage a raid on what they thought was a politically unpopular group that they could walk in with 100 agents, arrest the leader, and show how tough they were. Well, those people resisted. They didn't want to be uh, the victim of 100 gunmen, you know, going after them, especially when they've been warned there was a, there, there was a raid coming. This is the, the code name for the eventual February 28th military-style assault deemed a dynamic entry by the ATF. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a euphemism. This was called Operation Showtime. Well, you don't call something Operation Showtime. It, you know, how about Operation Legal Process? How about Operation you know, Search Warrant or Operation Due Process? No, they called it Operation Showtime. Then it says, and dynamic entry was the ATF's first option, not its last option. The U.S. House of Representatives reported on August 2nd, 1996, after an investigation, the subcommittee, subcommittees concluded that the ATF was predisposed to using aggressive military tactics in an attempt to serve the arrest and search warrant. The ATF deliberately chose not to arrest Koresh outside the Davidian residence and instead determined to use a dynamic entry approach. The bias toward the use of force may in large part be explained by a culture within the ATF. So Koresh was never he, never, he didn't stay there permanently. It's not like he isolated himself there. He was in town all the time. They could have arrested him any time. The sheriff said, you talk to him. Hey, Dave, what's going on? You know. So the sheriff could have talked, but they didn't talk to the sheriff because they didn't want to. They wanted to raid. wanted to show how tough they were. They wanted to have a raid. And these people resisted, something they didn't count on. Well, it's because they're idiots. Another little section here. In a phone interview with CNN, that the evening of the initial ATF raid on February 28th, Koresh claimed that the ATF agents had started the shooting. He says, they started, they started firing at me. And so what happened was that I fell back at the door and bullets started coming through the door. And so then what happened was some of the young men with us just started firing on them. And as I was all, already hollering, I was saying, go away. You know, I was hollering, go away. There's women and children here. Let's talk. So that's what Koresh said, right? So as Koresh's interview concluded, uh, coincided with the experience of Texas law enforcement when Koresh had a run-in with the, several, with the law several years earlier. Local officials reported no difficulties talking with Koresh or with arresting him for an alleged crime, which resulted in a hung jury. Uh, McClellan uh, County District Attorney Vic Fiesel, F-E-A-Z-E-L, or I don't know, Faisal, whatever, the Houston Chronicle, March 1st, 1993. We had no problems. We treated them like human beings rather than stormtrooping the place. They were extremely polite people. After the trial, although we didn't agree with everything they believed or said, many of the staff were pretty sympathetic with them. So take a community that may be a little offbeat, a little crazy, but it's okay. You have the right to that in, in America. And the ATF goes in and wants to kill them, sends in 100 art agents, because the only, the only thing they considered was a raid. 
on people that otherwise would have cooperated completely. That's why I call it a murder. Pianki? Bringing you back in the conversation here. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Scary when that happens, huh? All right. Um, that needs to be a conversation that's going on today. Well, you know, I wrote a book. I wrote an, excuse me, I wrote a bill. Um, I did write a book, but that's a different story. Um, but I wrote a bill on disarming the feds. And the whole point of that is that if you look at the Constitution, uh, there is no provision for anybody in the bureaucracy to be armed. Now, we're not talking about the military here, so, so people should not confuse the issue. Military is separate. Okay? Military is the military. Um, but the bureaucracy, the agencies, the departments, the EPA, the Department of Justice, uh, Department of Education, the Energy Department, they all have SWAT teams. The Department of Justice has all kinds of folks. And the IRS just got 87,000 new soldiers. There are 287,000 armed bureaucrats into a bureaucrat infantry in the country right now, 287,000. If you consider 20,000 soldiers as a division, some people consider 10,000. If you consider 20,000 soldiers as a division, that's over 12 divisions. That's bigger than most armies in the world. And yet, we have these armed agents. So this is the Second Amendment in reverse. So... The federal government has 287,000 agents, at least four times as many guns. So they probably have two million guns, you know, four, four guns per agent, just to say. They've got billions of rounds of ammunition. Well, these are all domestic officers. They have no authority or jurisdiction outside the United States. So where do they think they're going to use those 287,000 armed agents, four million guns, and billions of rounds of ammunition? There's only one place they can use them, against us. That's why I wrote a bill to disarm them. Because they have no constitutional authority to be armed. And then what to do with the guns and the ammo, it's really simple. Goes to the civilian marksmanship program. American citizens, and they do test for that, sign up for a marksmanship program and then get awarded, you know, uh, uh, an ATF or an FBI or a Department of Education gun. And ammo. That's how it works. Now, normally you, you buy them at a nominal cost, but I would, uh, I would distribute them for free since the taxpayers already paid for them. So that's how you do it. You disarm the bureaucrats, then you fire them, <laughs> you know, and then we get back to a constitutional government. But no one's come out and, and blatantly said, as I have, that uh, there is no constitutional authority for the FBI. They're a national police force or the ATF or to even arm the IRS or to arm any bureaucrat for that matter. There is no provision for them to be armed. None. And this is what happens when they are armed. Look what they do. They kill people because they want to make a good impression on a budget hearing. That's about as cynical as it gets. Jackie? There'll be another discussion, Greg. <laughs> Let's switch to COVID now. Another government policy of murder. This is why I'm putting these two together today. Get, get all these articles done, then I'll be done with it. I'll take a break uh, in, a, in a few minutes, top of the hour. Paul Craig Roberts, Institute for Political Economy. Now we're going back to the old articles. These are the, these are the best articles that were written in the first few months of COVID. These are the ones that I used in my early COVID shows. This was the backup, the sources I used uh, to proclaim that the government response was a total hoax, that the vaccine wasn't needed, that there was no pandemic, that we had early treatments and cures, that all this was a bunch of nonsense to steal our rights. And guess what? It was right then and right now. 
Paul Craig Roberts, the cure that works is opposed by Fauci and CNN and Big Pharma, April 11th, 2020. So we're talking one month after 15 days to slow the spread. Dear Mr. President, I hum- that would be Trump. I humbly suggest the following. It is essential to start treatment against COVID-19 immediately upon clinical suspicion of infection and not to wait for confirmation, confirmatory testing. Dr. Zelenko said that too. He says there's a very narrow window of opportunity to eliminate the virus before pulmonary complications begin. That would be heart. No, pulmonary is lung, I think. Lung compli- yeah, pulmonary is lung complications begin. The waiting to treat is the essence of the problem. The waiting to treat is the essence of the problem. Dr. Zelenko realized that, and he told me about this too when he was on the show. And he said, I can't wait five days for them to come back. He said, those five days are critical. You know, and he says, besides the treatment, doesn't do any harm. Hydroxychloroquine doesn't do harm. You know, uh, it does harm to the virus. It doesn't, do, it doesn't do harm to the person. Because what hydroxychloroquine does is it breaks down the protein wall of a virus. And the zinc uh, kills the virus and it stops it from replicating. Kills the genetic material. So zinc, hydroxychloroquine, and azithromycin to prevent pneumonia and other bacterial infections is the cure. And it works. So, of course, we couldn't have it because they wanted to sell vaccines. Because murder is government policy. Number two, from Paul Craig Roberts, emphasis must be, for, must be to prevent complications in the outpatient setting and not to wait until the patient needs to be admitted to, in the hospital and put on a respirator. This will eliminate the respirator, respirator shortness and lower mortality significantly. Number three, the risk of side effects is exaggerated and is fear-mongering. There's a theme. The theoretical risk of QT prolongation is one in a thousand. That's where QT is. And it says the actual risk of death in a high-risk population is between 5 to 10%. The risk versus benefit analysis overwhelmingly favors treatment. Pianchi, name one disease that we refuse to treat that gets better on its own as government policy. Can you think of one? No. So if the policy is to not treat until you can't treat, would that not be government murder? Yeah, I think that the government has no business telling you what you should be taking anyway. Well, I think so too. You know, I don't believe in mandatory medical treatments. The only thing that uh, that makes sense is for the only job the CDC legitimately has, which is stopping people from coming into the country when they have symptoms or actually have a communicable danger. Like you don't want to let a bunch of people with Ebola fly into the United States. That would be stupid. But as far as Americans go, we have constitutional rights. And people always assume that if the government says we have to quarantine and we have to stop this, this virus, that they're actually being accurate. And they weren't. They knew it was designed by them and the Department of Defense. They knew it wasn't that dangerous. They knew that uh, if they could, uh, if people got it and they didn't get treatment for it, they had a much higher chance of dying. They knew that. That's all part of the plan. Government murder. Policy. So they could push vaccines and make billions of dollars in profit. The virus was actually a marketing plan. Mandatory marketing plan. Then it's here. Uh, this is World War III, virus versus humanity. We don't have time to wait for the results of a long study. Millions will die while we wait. Well, not necessarily. We need to initiate immediate treatment of high-risk patients in the outpatient setting. That is true. You should always treat the high-risk patients immediately. Then he says, number five, any obstruction to life-saving medication, that's hydroxychloroquine, should be viewed as crimes against humanity. Yep, I agree. Prophylaxis, I guess that's preventive, should be considered in the very high-risk patients, in other words, nursing homes. 
We need an immediate supply of 1.5 pills of hydroxychloroquine, 200 milligram, and 500 million pills of azithromycin, 500 milligram, 500 million pills of zinc sulfate, you know, 220 milligram, and we need 50 milligram of elemental zinc. Well, that's the, that's the Zelenko protocol. Hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, um, and uh, that's it. That's what saves people. We knew it back in April. Well, why would you bring out a vaccine in December when we already had the cure in April? Actually, we had the cure before that. <clears throat> Unless you plan to kill people, to generate feel, to fear, so that you could push a, a vaccine and mandates on people. Why would you delay? Why would the government force doctors not to treat patients when they, you know, when they knew that the lack of treatment was what was going to kill them? The only reason was because they intended to kill them to generate fear to sell vaccines later on. That's the only reason. Why else would you do it? If the government was interested in saving lives, they would have gone with what worked, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and zinc. Because they blocked those things, they blocked them specifically because they knew they did work. And they couldn't have something cure COVID because then they couldn't bring out their vaccines in six months, which are not vaccines. Death by government. Number nine, he says, I suggest the following prophylactic regimen for very high-risk patients. Uh, same thing again. He says, we need an executive order. Oh, this is actually Zelenko's letter. Oh, interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, my mistake. Okay, so, what's, so Paul Craig Roberts didn't write this. Dr. Zelenko wrote this. I should read the bottom of my article. So this is from Dr. No wonder he's got the Zelenko protocol. It's his own protocol. This is the letter he sent to President Trump. Must be. He says, uh, he says, we need an executive order to override any state obstacles and allow all physicians to prescribe the medication without the fear of liability or retribution. So you're liable if you provided the cure, not if you, provided the, the, if you stopped treatment and killed people. You're liable for that. But you were if you cured people. You were liable for that. It's fascinating. He says, pharmacies must be permitted to d- dispense this medication without the fear of liability or retribution. I said that. The task force, that's the, the presidential Coronavirus Task Force must announce that physicians must treat patients early and aggressively, even without confirmatory testing. If tests come back negative, the patient could be advised to stop the medication. With much respect, Dr. Vladimir Zev Zelenko. Dear Mr. President, so that's the one. So it wasn't Paul Craig Roberts. He just copied the letter. But that was the actual letter that Dr. Zelenko, my friend, sent to President Trump. And this is back, uh, I don't know when he sent it. Might have been in April. Probably, well, it probably was. This is, let me just copying it here. So, yeah, so by April uh, 11th, a month after 15 days to slow the spread, the president had the cure. And didn't, uh, he let the other people influence him and not do it. That was the crime. That was Trump's biggest mistake. Pianchi, had you heard the, the letter to the president before? I'm sorry, I, I should have read the bottom of it, you know, but, and then know what it was. But that I was think my I have. But, you know, you have to also think uh, Trump was under tremendous pressure. Anyone would, would have, really. Because the news was constantly saying he did what he was mm-hmm. responsible for one of these people. Mm-hmm. See, this is the problem with being president. This is why it's such a stressful thing. Because he's the one that has to make the decisions. Lex well, in Brandon's case when they're made for him. But you look at uh, any president who's conscientious, and they have to err on the side of caution because, history, you know, if, if I make a wrong comment on the radio, history's not going to blame me for that, you know. But also not going to give me credit when I'm right, apparently. <laughs> but the thing is that, uh, that what we do here is nowhere near as consequential as what Trump did. 
So you're going to err on the side of caution. If everybody's telling you, you better do this or millions of people are going to die, then if you don't do it and millions of people die, they come back and say, well, we told you. Look what you did. Well, they can't have that. They don't want that responsibility. They don't want, they want to err on the side of caution. Unfortunately, the people that said millions of people were going to die were simply interested in making money from a, from a non-vaccine. That's why it's so dangerous. So you got the wrong advice and the, the wrong people. Media, uh-huh. The news media is not held accountable for putting out the inflamed stories mm-hmm. as they did. No, in fact, they're they're praised by the government for you know what they call going after misinformation when they are in fact the misinformation. The people that say you're lying are the fa- are the people who are lying and lying about you lying. It's really twisted. Here's one for you from uh, it's a it's a news source. Uh, it's uh, see if I can find. Uh, it's got a squiggly thing, and then it says news. And I don't know where the website is. It's the health. Uh, oh, ABC Health and Wellbeing. Here we go. Is this ABC News Network? I don't think so. Let me see if I can find. Uh, I'll start at the bottom this time. And actually, say so I get so many articles when I go through a bunch of them. Uh, top stories. No, it just says uh, it's the end. This is ABC News. This is ABC. So look what ABC published. Back in um, April 16th of 2020. So about the same time as that other one. So Zelenko's letter came out. Uh, let me just get that one, I guess. So, so Zelenko's letter was April 11th. So we're talking five days later. Article on ABC News and health. We've never made a successful vaccine for a coronavirus before. This is why it's so difficult. So they already knew in April, even as warp speed is gearing up, that it's, it's almost impossible to make a vaccine for coronavirus. They knew. Where was this? Article? I mean, I've got it in my files, so I reported it at some point you know, during early COVID around April of 2020. Listen to this. This is by uh, ABC Health and Wellbeing. Joe Ken uh, for the health report. That's J-O-K-H-A-N. Oh. What do we got here? Here we go. For those pinning their hopes on a COVID-19 vaccine to return life to normal, an Australian expert in vaccine development has a reality check. It probably won't happen soon. Australia, of course, was, was absolutely oppressed. He says the reality is that this particular coronavirus is posing challenges that scientists haven't dealt with before, according to Ian Fraser from the University of Queensland. Well, they, they hadn't dealt with it because it was man-made. <laughs> That's why. They didn't know that then. He says Professor Fraser was involved in the successful development of the vaccine for the human papillomavirus, which causes cervical cancer a vaccine which took years of work to develop. And that's actually being challenged now, too. Article says he the challenge is that coronaviruses have historically been hard to make safe vaccines for, partly because the virus infects the upper respiratory tract, which our immune system isn't great at protecting. Well, that's interesting. As far as smokers are so badly affected. He says, and while we have vaccines for seasonal influenza, HPV, and other diseases, Creating a new vaccine isn't as simple as taking an existing one and swapping the virus. And that's from Larissa Labzin, an immunologist from the University of Queensland, who is obviously more qualified than Dr. Fascist. She says, uh, for each virus or different bacterium that causes a disease, we need a different vaccine because the immune response that's mounted is different. So that's the difference between a vaccine, which is only designed to handle one thing, and your immune system, which is designed to handle everything. That's why immune systems are better than vaccines. Then the quote is, just because we got a really good vaccine against polio doesn't mean the same thing will work with coronavirus because it's so different. Then it says the challenge of respiratory infections. There are several reasons why our upper respiratory tract is a hard area to target a vaccine. 
it's a separate immune system, if you like, which isn't easily accessible by vaccine technology. That's Professor Fraser. Despite your upper respiratory tract feeling very much like it's inside your body, it's effectively considered an external surface for the purpose of immunization. Yeah, that's where the air first hits. Once it gets down your nose and mouth, it goes into your upper respiratory tract. It's like trying to get a vaccine to kill a virus on the surface of your skin. That makes a lot of sense. He says, your skin and the outer layer of cells in your upper respiratory tract act as a barrier to viruses, stopping them getting into your body. And finding a way to move the virus outside of the body is very difficult. This is partly because only the outer layers of cells, the epithelial cells, get infected, which compared to a severe infection of internal organs, doesn't produce the same immune response, so it's harder to target. It's hard to produce a successful vaccine if the virus isn't activating a strong immune response. Huh, well, that's interesting. So the virus does not produce a strong immune response, then what's its purpose? Then it says, if a vaccine elicits an immune response that misses the target cells, the result could potentially be worse than if no vaccine was given. In other words, your body creates an immune response to something that's not sick. That's called an autoimmune disease, self-immunity. That's what kills people with like lupus and some of the other things, where the body turns on itself and thinks its own body is the enemy. Great. <laughs> Another quote, one of the problems with coronavirus vaccine, corona vaccines in the past has been that when the immune response does cross over to where the virus infected cells are, it actually increases the pathology rather than reducing it. So in other words, taking a corona vaccine may be thicker. Well, that's proven to be true again, right? Then it says, so that immunization with sars cov vaccine caused, that'd be SARS-1, uh, in animals, inflammation in the lungs, which wouldn't otherwise have been there if the vaccine hadn't been given. That's why all the goats died. <laughs> you remember, Pianchi, you remember the, the child when all the goats died that got the, 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 the COVID vaccine? Huh. This is what's the story of antibodies. Antibodies are proteins that are released by the immune system to neutralize a threat like a virus. We've so far found with coronavirus that those infected have had different antibody responses, some weak, some strong. ABC News, again, has received many questions about how long immunity lasts and whether someone can be reinfected. So is antibody response critical to whether or not a vaccine is going to work? So the, to answer this, we have to go back to what we know about coronaviruses that cause the common cold. Uh, anyway, it's going to get too detailed. I've, I've had enough of this article. It's long, but you get the idea. And the idea basically is that uh, it's tough to make a vaccine for this. And yet they put Dr. Fascist said the only way out of this is with a vaccine. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Huh. Almost done with this. Then we're going to talk about a court case. I may make my, my, my three hours. Pianchi, commonalities between Waco and coronavirus in terms of government tyranny. Any of that you want to get involved with? Well, <clears throat> they both led to deaths, right? Uh-huh. And nobody's being held accountable. Nobody's going to prison. Yep, they're not going to, to prison for Corona. They're not going to prison for Waco. They're going to prison for stealing the 2020 election. They're not going to prison for anything. Hmm. I think I'll save these for next week. Next week, I want to get into jury nullif- uh, nullification, state nullification. But I'm going to take a break now. And when I come back, uh, you're fairly familiar with the, uh, the case of the judge in Missouri that overturned uh, the Missouri law saying that... Uh, Law enforcement and uh, the government does not have to recognize illegal federal gun laws. If you know the case, he'd tell that just go to hell. (laughs) 
Well, I'll start with an article. Then I'll get the, I actually have the text of the case. We can do that, too. So it's now – what time we got here? I understand. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, I, I can wait. Go ahead. Tell me. Well, you know, it's the audacity of these uh, judges in particular. Uh-huh. And until you, until you go through the process afforded to citizens to remove these judges, to uh-huh. send a message, they're going to continue to abuse their their jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, recall of judges should be, uh, I mean, you could do that through impeachment. I mean, this, um, the Congress should immediately recall this judge. Uh, get him out of the, get him off the bench. Absolutely. And but, it shouldn't take a year to do it. It should be done within a matter of days. Well, yeah, you could one day of hearings, you know, bring the, bring the judge in, you know, uh, instruct him what the true meaning of the supremacy clause is and uh, get him out of there. But he's an Obama judge, so what do you expect? All right, it is now 9 o'clock. I'm going to take a couple minutes. We're going to come back with the Missouri case. I have an article on it, and I also have, uh, which I think is, is, is uh, the actual case itself. And we'll skip through the, the nonsense, and we'll get right to the good stuff. So let me play a couple things for you guys, and then I will be uh, right back. And yeah, just So give me a few minutes. And uh, here's our one for, for sponsors. Here at Action Radio, we are looking for sponsors. We have 30 and 60 second spots available for your announcements. And we have three minute live call-ins to talk about your products and services available. Action Radio is the next evolution beyond talk radio. Join us and let us help your business evolve. Think about being a sponsor of the future and not just a listener and help us help your business grow as you help us plunge headlong into breaking new ground here on Action Radio every day. From addiction to achievement, that is the story of Mike Lindell. It started with my pillow and now goes to my coffee. Action Radio is proud to be an affiliate of my pillow. Our discount code is the same for all our product affiliates, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws. My pillow pillows are guaranteed the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own. Action Radio is guaranteed to be the most controversial show you will ever hear. Check out their products with our discount code at MyPillow.com slash W-Y-L. That's MyPillow.com slash W-Y-L. Or order now by calling 1-800-544-8939. That's 1-800-544-8939. Sleep well so you can wake up and hear Action Radio Live. Hello, this is Greg Penglis for our newest shooting range here in Milton, Florida. Stand your ground. My friend Jason Myers and crew are creating an incredible facility for our city. Stand Your Ground is located at 6632 Elba Street. The phone number is 850-789-1776. Their email is standyourground1776 at gmail.com. Here you'll find either in process or already going an indoor shooting range, axe throwing, archery, a rage room, self-defense classes, concealed carry weapons classes, security license training, 
Paintball, a full-service gun store, and 24-7 online ordering. So come on down or contact them by phone, email, or website and learn how you can best stand your ground. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizen action. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. Dangerously cool. So we're back. I got uh, Marco in the Netherlands. He says, have no fear. Marco is here. Well, that's good. I got Pianchi on the line, uh, and I got my microphone, and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> so for our last story today, our last uh, subject area, this has actually gone well. I'm, I, uh, uh, thank you to both of you, um, Marco and Pianchi. Otherwise, I would have probably just burned out a while ago uh, on all this, uh, all this news and stuff like that. But anyway... I was able to, to take some breaks and, and keep going here. Um, it's hard talking for three hours straight. Believe me, I've done it. It's, it's not easy. Anyway, so we've got a problem in Missouri. And the problem in Missouri is the federal government. The federal government, the Brandon insurrection, are the ones who brought this case. So Missouri passes a law, and the federal government steps in and is the plaintiff, making the state of Missouri the defendants. So let me give you the background, then I'll get Pianchi's uh, assessment of this. Uh, and then, I, then we, I'd like to hear from Mark on the Netherlands, because guys can't even have guns, which is kind of stupid, but there it is. It'd be interesting if, if we could start a, a Second Amendment movement uh, in the Netherlands. I, I'd be for it. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Anyway, so I'll let Marco toss that around for a bit. So this is from the Center Square. It's a Missouri website. Top story by Joe Muller, M-U-E-L-L-E-R, uh, March 7th, 2023. Federal judge rules Missouri's Second Amendment Preservation Act unconstitutional. That's fascinating in itself. Look at that headline. Federal judge says the Missouri Second Amendment Preservation Act is unconstitutional. What kind of a wacko would even think that? Well, apparently the federal government does because they don't like the Second Amendment. And this is, it says Missouri's Second Amendment Preservation Act was ruled con- unconstitutional and voided by a federal judge on Tuesday. Well, that, as, as we have discussed on the show, is unconstitutional. There is no power of judicial review. Judges cannot arbitrarily take a law uh, and just declare it unconstitutional. They can't do it. That's, that's way beyond their powers. Now, can the U.S. Constitution to declare a law, un, a law unconstitutional as part of a case you know, affecting parties? Absolutely. That's under their purview, uh, under the federal judiciary, under Article 3. But can a judge just say that a state law is unconstitutional and just declare that? No, <laughs> yeah, especially uh, using this bogus methodology that they were using. So this judge acted illegally, so, and I'll prove that uh, as we go through it. 
Article says, in a 24-page ruling, it's actually kind of short for judges, but good, U.S. District Judge Byron Wimes, W-I-M-E-S, ordered House Bill 85, signed into law by Republican Governor Mike Parson in 2021 as invalidated, as unconstitutional in its entirety, as violative of the Supremacy Clause. It says HB 85 is invalid, null, void, and of no effect. Okay, he can't say that. That's judicial review. Declaring a law unconstitutional, um, just, you know, well, I guess they did have a case, but he did the case wrongly. So let's, let me put it on that basis. There's a real fine line between what judges can do in terms of, uh, you know, declaring a, a law unconstitutional uh, in terms of using the Constitution to do it. But they can't just do it in this case where you misuse the Constitution. And that's the case I'm going to prove. So let's, let's, let's leave it at that and see what happens. This is the law prohibited Missouri law enforcement agencies from enforcing federal gun laws not approved by state lawmakers and instituted $50,000 fines for violations. So in other words, if you enforce a gun law not approved by Missouri, you get fined for it. I kind of like this. So this is basically state nullification of, a, of an unjust federal law. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's perfectly acceptable. That's how the Constitution is supposed to work. So this is the bill invalidated or nullified federal laws or other actions deemed to infringe on a person's Second Amendment right to bear arms. Well, it's true. This is the federal law preempts the state law if the two are in direct conflict, Wimes wrote in his decision. That's not true. Federal law uh, only uh, is, uh, is supreme when the federal government has jurisdiction there in the Constitution. If the federal government does not have jurisdiction and the federal government has no jurisdiction, over the right to keep and bear arms because Second Amendment. So anything this judge said was going to be wrong. So you can't apply the supremacy clause when you don't have jurisdiction at all. In fact, the state of Missouri doesn't have jurisdiction. They even said so. The Second Amendment is the jurisdiction. The Second Amendment is, is, the, is the clause that counts. The Second Amendment is the supremacy clause in this case. I wonder if they put that in the opinion. I'll have to find out. This is an explanation of the law's unconstitutionality. Wimes said the law's practical effects are counterintuitive to its stated purpose. Well, that's interesting. While purporting to protect citizens, no, that's not what it does. This is interesting. He says, while purporting to protect citizens, SAPA, the Second Amendment Protection Act, exposes citizens to greater harm by interfering with the federal government's ability to enforce lawfully enacted firearms regulations designed by Congress for the purpose of protecting citizens within the limits of the Constitution. That's a bunch of BS. Uh, Pianca, you want to have that first, or shall I? Well, you can go ahead, but also uh, the, his ruling is being appealed. Oh, good. Well, it should be. Uh, in fact, we're going to follow this case. Uh, this is this is uh, this is quite fascinating to me. I love these legal. Uh, I love getting in the weeds with legal stuff. Maybe we can bring up with Jonathan Monday. We'll see. Uh, I, I sent him the case a while back. So let's talk about where the judge was wrong. Practical effects are counterintuitive to a stated purpose. That's not true. Its stated purpose is to maintain the Second Amendment, the right of Missouri citizens to keep and bear arms. That's its, that's the stated, that is the stated purpose of the law. So to say it's counterproductive is, is actually wrong. Then he says, while purporting to protect citizens, this law is not designed to protect citizens. It's designed to protect citizens' rights. There's a big difference. Governments all the time say we have to protect people. And they use public health, and they use reasonable restrictions, and they use compelling state interest, and it's all BS. None of that is true. It's not the government's job to protect citizens. It's the government's job to protect the rights of citizens from government. That's what government's supposed to do. And, and this, they find that counterintuitive. They find it impossible to protect citizens from themselves, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. That's why we have multiple branches of government. Then it says, 
uh, interfering with the federal government's ability to enforce lawfully enacted firearms regulations. Well, they'd be lawfully enacted, A, if they were voted by Congress, and B, if they were constitutionally compliant. These regulations were not, as far as I know, and I could be, but as far as I know, they were not enacted by Congress. And even if they were, the Second Amendment uh, would have made them illegal anyway. The 1968 Even control, another thing, go ahead. looking at this judge, I think he would we'll probably have to apply the litmus test that we talked about early on in the beginning of the show. Yeah, he's a black judge under diversity, equity, and uh, uh, inclusion, which I have titled Division, Extortion, and uh, Idiocracy. Yeah. So and I, in fact, about the, one of the very first things I said in the show, uh, I think you missed it, but I said that uh, when I see a black judge, unfortunately, the first thing I think of is, are they a diversity judge? Are they an inclusion judge? Are they uh, are they black rather than because they have any legal ability. I got nothing against black judges. I have everything against black judges that are there because they're black, not because they're good judges. That's the difference. So yeah, you know, and it's unfortunate. We talked about that with pilots. Do you see a black pilot and think, I wonder if they got there by affirmative action or do they actually know what they're doing? We should never have to ask that question. That should never cross our minds. That should never be an issue. And on a merit-based system, it wouldn't be. So let me get back to it here. So the federal government's ability to enforce lawfully enacted firearms regulations, okay, that's not true, designed by Congress for the purposes of protecting citizens within the limits of the Constitution. Well, the laws are not designed to protect citizens because the laws only affect law-abiding citizens in an illegal way. So they're not protecting at all. In fact, they're, they're, they're actually making it more dangerous for citizens by taking away the implements of their own self-protection, which is firearms. See, these laws and regulations don't touch criminals because criminals don't obey them. And they don't arrest criminals now for disobeying them, for breaking regulations and breaking laws. They don't arrest criminals for that. So they're not protecting us from the people that are breaking the regulations. They're only saying that they want to enforce this on people that are law-abiding anyway and have, the, and have their rights violated. So within the limits of the Constitution, well, the limits of the Constitution are limits on government. They're not limits on our rights because the government can't put limits on our rights. That's, the whole, that's what makes something a right. A right is something the government can't touch, that we can exercise freely, without coercion or intimidation. That's what a right is. So Second Amendment is a right. We have the right to keep and bear arms. And this says nothing about the use of them. So if you think about protecting, well, we have to protect people from criminals, or we have to protect people from dangerous uses of firearms. Yes, you do. But you don't do that by touching the right of law-abiding citizens. You do that by making a law for things that are illegal with firearms. See, statutory law... uh, as long as it complies with the Constitution, it's perfectly legal. It's perfectly legitimate for the government. I've talked about this a bunch of times to break up firearms uses into legal and illegal uses, keeping and bearing. They cannot touch the ability to keep and bear. They can only touch the use. Well, uses, brandishing, kidnapping, carjacking, murder, extortion, bank robbery, child abuse, you know, rape, you name it. Those are illegal uses of a firearm. Legal uses, self-defense, target shooting, collecting, gunsmithing, competition, hunting, collecting, all those things are legal uses of firearms. So that's the difference. Government can make that distinction. We elect government officials to make the distinction between legal and illegal uses of firearms. Uses, not keeping and bearing. And the reason that keeping and bearing is so critical is because if you need to use your firearm in legitimate purpose, such as self-defense, it has to be instantly available to you. That's why the right to keep and bear cannot be touched. Because if you need a firearm and it's sitting at home, 
then the government has denied you your right of self-defense and you might very well be killed. Comments, then I'll get back to the article. Hearing no comments, I shall proceed. <laughs> Republican Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey promised an appeal in a social media post. That's what Pianca was just talking about. He says, as Attorney General, this is the Attorney General of Missouri, as Attorney General, I will protect the Constitution, which includes defending Missourians' fundamental right to bear arms. We are prepared to defend this statute to the highest court. Yeah, I can't wait for this to get to the Supreme Court. And we anticipate a better result at the Eighth Circuit. The Second Amendment is what makes the rest of the amendments possible. If the state legislature wants to expand upon the foundational rights codified in the Second Amendment, they have the authority to do that. But SAPA, the Second Amendment Protection Act, is also about the Tenth Amendment. It's about federalism and individual liberty. So we will be appealing the court's ruling. It says Tuesday's ruling came after a lawsuit filed by the Department of Justice. Why would the Department of Justice be appealing the Second Amendment? Think about that. They're appealing a law that upholds the Second Amendment against the governments. The government is actually appealing a law that protects Missouri from the federal government, a lawsuit initiated by the federal government, the Department of Justice, who you would think would be the people most you know, adhering to and supporting the Second Amendment as they swear an oath to do. I just find it fascinating. Department of Justice, Missouri. That's Merrick Garland, folks. And this is two, a good thing he didn't know on the Supreme Court. That's the one good thing that Mitch McConnell did was keep Merrick Garland off the Supreme Court. That would have been a disaster. Then it says two other state court lawsuits were filed against the law, one by the city of Arnold and the other by the city of St. Louis, St. Louis County and Jackson County. Pianchi, are you familiar with these uh, extra suits? What, what are they saying in the local press about this? No, I'm not familiar with those extra suits. Okay. I shall continue then. St. Louis Except Mayor... Except those two areas are highly democratic. Say that again, I'm sorry? Those two areas of mention are highly democratic. Yeah, so this is going to be interesting. Um, so did they, did the mayors refuse to enforce this bill? Did they say we're not going to protect the Second Amendment? Did they come out, was there any decisions or regulations or actions? Or is I it don't too know. New yet? Okay. Well, if you hear something, let me know. This is St. Louis Mayor Tishara, T-I-S-H-A-U-R-A Jones, St. Louis County Election Executive Sam Page, and Jackson County Executive Frank White, I guess these are business people, issued a joint statement. Both of them. Saying like, their con- well, I don't know What's about that? Frank. I don't know about uh, White. Tishara is the first black female mayor. Uh-huh. City of St. Louis is totally, totally in disarray. <laughs> well, it's the you can't elect people because they're black. You have to elect people because they're good, or women for that matter, too. Sam Page, black guy or white guy? Do you know? I think Sam Page is uh, black, but I'm not sure. Okay. And Frank White, we don't know. Just, just I curious. don't know. Okay, that's fine. Anyway, they issued a joint statement stating their constituents want the legislation to enact sensible gun safety measures. Okay, gun safety measures, that's unconstitutional, too if it touches the right to keep and bear. And actually, we have gun safety measures. It's called consumer uh, uh, product uh, protection. So in other words, guns have all kinds of safety measures. If a gun doesn't work, the company's held liable for that. If a gun fires when you drop it or it doesn't work properly, 
In other words, when it doesn't fire when you pull the trigger, companies are liable for a faulty, defective product. There are consumer product safety laws that govern guns like you wouldn't believe. But that's not what they're talking about. <laughs> anyway, it says the bipartisan majority of Missourians want the state legislature to enact common sense gun safety measures like red flag laws and background checks. You know, these are your liberals, right? To help keep families across our state safe, which they don't. The statement said, but year after year, Jefferson City politicians have continued to pass dangerous bills that make it more difficult to prevent gun violence in our communities. That's not true either. HB 85 makes it harder for police to do their jobs and strips away critical tools we need to protect our neighborhoods. We are encouraged by the federal court ruling today declaring it unconstitutional. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> you know, how is taking away constitutional rights of law-abiding uh, make streets safer? By taking away the, the implements by which people can protect themselves. It makes government safer. It makes criminals safer. But it doesn't make people safer. So as I went through this, and I was looking at the, uh, the actual court case, I have it here, in the United States District Court for the Western District of Missouri, Central Division, Plaintiff, the United States of America. Wow, that's impressive. Defendant, State of Missouri. <laughs> Basically, the, the Justice Department went for what they call a summary judgment. In other words, we're not going to take this to trial. This has no business being in court. We're just going to tell you right now that we have uh, supreme authority. Uh, our firearms regulations are legal, and the state of Missouri cannot stop it. <laughs> None of that is true, by the way, but that's what they said. state of Missouri said, no, <laughs> this is perfectly constitutional to use the Second Amendment to protect our citizens from illegal gun laws. I'm with the state of Missouri on this one. I think they're absolutely right. So let's get state the actual of Missouri is a fallen country. Well, exactly. Well, now, see, it'd be interesting if that, that we need to do more with that. We need to, um, I don't know how, you know, I really want to get Alan Dershowitz on the show because he'd be the perfect person to talk to you about that. Have you read my article, The Nation of Government? No. Hmm. If you get a chance, let me know. I'd be curious what you think because I talk about, you know, the, the Washington, D.C. as its own country and the states become colonies. Well, D.C. is a different thing. D.C. is uh created for the federal government, but the state of Missouri, any other city states are, in, in effect, their own sovereign country. They got the constitution, they got the government, they got the militia. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting and the people federal government gets its powers from who? It gets its powers from the states. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, and the Congress controls D.C. What's interesting about D.C. is, is the only citizens of the United States, other than those in territories, who have no state citizenship are those in D.C. So all the rest of us are citizens per the 14th Amendment of not only the United States, but the state in which we reside. Well, since people in D.C. don't reside in a state and never will because it can't be a state, it's a district by the Constitution, they actually do not have any state uh, citizenship, which is interesting. Well, they I don't think live there. Well, and, uh, so that, which raises the question, should we allow people to live in D.C.? Well, you know, you and I have no say on where they they live. They live where they want to. They can live out in the middle of a. Mm-hmm. They can live on a boat. Well, maybe we should make DC smaller. Maybe we should make it five square miles instead of ten square miles, and just have government there. Well, those ten square miles are put in place for a particular reason too. I think it's like twelve of them. If I'm not sure. 12 oh, that are reserved. Either 12 or 10. 
Well, there is, it's 10 square miles, as it says on the Constitution. It says no more than 10 square miles. So, of course, they go up to it. All right, yeah, let's get to the law. Located around the country, they overlap, but that's another discussion. <laughs> yeah, there are so many first. Um, and again, people, if you want to do something positive, uh, get to the, uh, the Atlanta Lawyers Conference on COVID litigation and send them links to our bills on vaccine liability and uh, big tech censorship, because those are the ones that need to be there. All right, let's talk about the law itself. So this is from the, the, uh, um, the Obama judge's uh, ruling or opinion. <laughs> he says, on June 12, 2021, Governor Parson signed SAPA, the Second Amendment Preservation Act, into law. And it says, uh, here is section uh, 1.410, findings. Although several states have granted supremacy to laws and treaties made under the powers granted in the Constitution of the United States, such supremacy does not extend to various federal statutes, executive orders, administrative orders, court orders, rules, regulations, or other actions that collect data or restrict or prohibit the manufacturer ownership or use of firearms, firearms accessories, or ammunition exclusively with borders of Missouri. Such statutes, executive orders, administrative orders, court orders, rules, regulations, and other actions exceed the powers granted to the federal government, except to the extent they are necessary and proper for the governing and regulating uh, the United States Armed Forces or for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia forces actively employed in the service of the United States Armed Forces. So there you go. That's what they found. They found that, uh, you know, the several states have granted supremacy to laws and treaties made with uh, you know, the federal government, but Missouri's not. <laughs> Here's the key section. This is the one that the, the, uh, the governor um, and the, the, the judge and the federal government hate so much. Section 1.4, federal laws deemed infringements of the United States and Missouri constitutions. Did they bring the Missouri constitution? See, the, guy, the, 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 the judge who wrote this does not respect the Missouri constitution at all because he considers the states to be underlings, to be subordinate to the federal government. This guy has such a warped knowledge of the Constitution, he should be off the bench for that alone. So Missouri said, and this I found really interesting, the following federal acts, laws, executive orders, administrative orders, those would be for administrative judges, rules and regulations shall be considered infringements on the people's right to keep and bear arms. So once they're considered an infringement, that makes them illegal. Okay? Because it says very clearly in the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So if something is considered an infringement, that automatically makes it unconstitutional per the Second Amendment. That's the whole point. It's a good choice of words. Regulations shall be considered infringements on the people's right to keep and bear arms. And that's the people's, not the government's right to keep and bear arms, the people's right, okay? As guaranteed by Amendment of the Constitution of the United States and Article 1, Section 23 of the Constitution of Missouri within the borders of this state, including but not limited to. You, have you read the Missouri Constitution of late, Pianchi? Any part of it? Yeah, I read several parts of it. Hmm. Do you know about uh, Article 1, Section 23? Is it just a repeat of the Second Amendment, or does Missouri add or, or take away language? In many cases of the time, it's basically a repeat of the Constitution. Okay. It's not a bad idea. I wish, though, that some states would uh, have the, the knowledge to change it and just say the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, and don't include the militia clause, because that, I think, causes more problems. I agree solved. with you. Yeah, I agree with you. In other words, rights should not be conditional, even though when it says a well-regulated militia, in other words, citizens equipped, equipped like army soldiers, is necessary to the security of a free state. They're actually declaring, they're justifying the Second Amendment like it needs justifying. 
So they said, well, we, we have to have the right of the people to keep and bear arms so they can participate in militias. We have to have militias because they're necessary for the states to stay free. I understand that. But they could have said that in a, in a, in a Federalist paper. They didn't have to actually say it in the Constitution. All they needed to say in the Constitution was the right of the people to keep and bear arms can't be touched or shall not be infringed, which means the same thing. So here's what Missouri said. The following federal acts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, are infringements on the Second Amendment. One, any tax, levy, fee, or stamp imposed on firearms, firearms, accessories, or ammunition not common to all other goods and services, and that might reasonably be expected to create a chilling effect on the purchase or ownership of those items by law-abiding citizens. Isn't that great? So in other words, you can charge a sales tax on a gun if you charge it on everything else. But the fee or stamp, the, the, the fee is for, for fully automatic weapons. This actually overturns the federal law that says you have to pay a stamp, you have to pay a tax to own a fully automatic weapon. This basically overturns the 1968 Gun Control Act and the 1934 Gun Control Act. That one clause right there. Because you can't put fee stamps, you can't do anything to guns that isn't done to every other good. And yet that's exactly what those two laws do. Was this circulated? Did, did people read the, uh, this one section, I-420? Because it really is the heart of everything uh, as far as this bill goes. Well, this bill wasn't very much talked about, as they usually aren't, until something like this comes up. If hmm. he hadn't done that, you never would have heard about it. It's always when they come out and put things in place to do the infringement. It's when you hear about it, like they're trying to tell the people, see, here, we can tell you what you can do and cannot do. Hmm. Right. When in actual reality, they can't. Well, this is, this is, let me just start again just so people can get caught up. So section 1.420 of the Missouri Code says the following federal acts, laws, executive orders, da 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 uh, are considered infringements on the people's right to keep and bear arms. Number one, any tax, levy, fee, or stamp imposed on firearms, accessories, ammunition that are not common to all other goods and services, okay, that might be reasonably expected to create a chilling effect. In other words, if you have a license or a fee or a stamp or something else, people might be less inclined to, to purchase a firearm um, because of the extra money. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, impose an extra burden on them because it's a firearm thing. So that's a good provision. Provision any registration or tracking of firearms, firearm accessories, or ammunition. Will that include Ford, Form 4473? Have they abandoned that in Missouri? I know they said the law was overturned, but you, you can't register fire or track firearms in Missouri, according to this. So this basically throws out that Form 4473, the registration form. Was that thrown out after yeah, the law was passed? Yeah, they uh-huh. See, judges, judges are only supposed to give opinion between arguments between two or more parties. Mm-hmm and say that if a law is unconstitutional on the basis of violating the civil rights of citizens. Mm-hmm. But what he's trying to do is saying that the federal government has rights over the states. And I totally yeah, or, or powers over the states. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This, he brings in the supremacy clause. We'll get to that when I get to his, his rationale. But I just thought it was interesting that this law passed by Missouri also says any registration or tracking of firearms from accessories or ammunition can't be done. Any registration or tracking of the ownership of firearms, accessories, and ammunition can't be done. Any act forbidding the possession, ownership, use, or transfer of a firearm, firearm, accessory, or ammunition by law-abiding citizens. In other words, 
anytime they try and stop, you know, grandfather from giving his grandkid a gun or any act ordering, this is number five, any act ordering the confiscation of firearms, firearm accessories or ammunition from law-abiding citizens. That would be red flag laws and a bunch of other things. This is a really good law. Every state should take this up. They should take it up in Florida. Now, they've got things on here, but that's the main one. Basically, it says that the Second Amendment means what it says, and the federal government can't touch it. I found that interesting. So the judge didn't agree. <laughs> the judge says the United States argues, argues it is entitled to summary judgment, in other words, throwing the case out, because the Second Amendment Preservation Act is unconstitutional. It says it's unconstitutional because it violates the supremacy clause of the federal constitution, uh, in its cornerstone provision, and that would be I-420, the one I just read, or 1.420, uh, purports to nullify federal law and is preempted uh, and or is preempted by federal law. Well, that's not true. And so the United States argues because Section 1.420 is non-severable. In other words, you can't separate it out. Then they have to throw out the whole law. But that's the one they don't like because that's the one that basically, you know, preserves the Second Amendment in Missouri. And they don't want that. But they said it violates the supremacy clause. And they said they can't separate it out. In other words, they can't make that one section, 1.420, unconstitutional. They have to make the whole law unconstitutional. So so let's let's get these provisions. We're we're actually going to finish this today, which is good. Section 1.420 violates the supremacy clause. This is what the judge said. The supremacy clause provides that the Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, shall be the supreme law of the land. That is true. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. That is true, too. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. But he leaves a part out of it. All right? He leaves a part out. And let me get my, my Constitution, and I'll tell you what he left out. And it's, actually, it's absolutely key to the Supremacy Clause. Uh, what is it? Where is Supremacy Clause? Does he say where it is? Uh, do you know what the Supremacy Clause is? I think it's Article 5 or 6. No. It's not off the top of my head. Okay. Oh, here we go. I found it. Article 6, Clause uh, clause 2 or Paragraph 2. This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, shall be made under the authority of the United States. See, that's the part he left out. Okay, shall be the supreme law of the land and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution. All right. So the sentence he left out was under the authority of the United States. So what is under the authority of the United States? So where's the federal government supreme? They're supreme under the authority of the United States delegated to them by the states in the Constitution. So the supremacy clause only applies to actions taken by the federal government when they are under the authority of the, you know, or laws made under the authority of the United States, which is under the authority of the Constitution. He didn't say that. He lied. See, if if anybody actually read this stuff isn't this hard to figure out, folks. You just read the Constitution. It's right there. So he says, the Supreme, listen to this, Bianca. This is, I think this is basically where I throw out this whole case. He says, the Supremacy Clause provides that, and here's his quote, the Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Okay? And the Constitution actually says, 
this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof and all treaties made, on which shall be made under the authority of the United States. So he leaves out under the authority of the United States. That's it. He's got the rest of the quote. He's got the rest of the paragraph. But he leaves out the one section that destroys his case. Because the supremacy clause only applies where the, where the federal government is actually supreme. And the federal government is only supreme in the areas that the states made them supreme. So state law actually supersedes federal government. And that's government. the uh, argument right. we was having. You made, you made mention of Article 6. Yeah, that was what we was, I was talking about the other day when uh-huh. someone said that treaties uh, can surplant the Constitution. Well, the treaties are allowed to exist by the Constitution. Uh-huh. Well, in other words, where the federal government has jurisdiction, um, the federal government is supreme. The jurisdiction, let me get that one sentence again because it really is key uh, to understand this. The, the federal government is, is, you know, the president and the senate are free to uh, make a treaty and ratify a treaty as long as it, it falls under the Constitution as legal. So it says the key sentence here, this, this little clause here, <clears throat> under the authority of the United States. So that's the limit of their jurisdiction. So the Supreme Clause says that the federal government is supreme only where the federal government is, uh, has the authority to be supreme. Doesn't well, it be, you know, it's not supreme is, over the states. Go ahead. Or treaties. Yeah, they're not supreme. The, the, the federal government gets its powers from the state. So the states are actually – so if you want to look at it this way, you could say that the states are, are supreme to the federal government, except in those areas where the states have delegated authority to the federal government. So Missouri law is actually supreme to federal regulations, policies, fees, stamps, all that other crap. Missouri they law get their authority. Is, it, Go ahead. Missouri law is giving respect to the Constitution, not right. federal laws, because federal laws can be a whole host of anything. If federal mm-hmm. laws go against the Constitution, they aren't no good. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he says that uh, the judge says, however, the Missouri General Assembly's assertion that the Supremacy Clause does not extend to acts of Congress does not make it so. Well, that's not what they said. <laughs> what they said was the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction to go against the Constitution. So the judge is basically lying. You can find anything else here. Uh, they got plain, plain language clause. See if I can. I'll have to go over this more. It says Section uh, 1.420 is preempted. Section 1.420 provides that certain federal firearms regulations are infringements on the people's right to keep and bear arms, as guaranteed by Amendment 2 of the Constitution, da, 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 within the borders of the state. But, okay, where she says wrong. A federal law preempts a state law if the two are in direct conflict. That's what he says. The judge says that. That's not true. And the evidence he gives is Alliance Insurance Company versus Wilson. Well, that's probably a, a, a Supreme Court case. But the Supreme Court cases are not are subordinate to the Constitution. So if a Supreme Court case says that federal law preempts state law if the two are in conflict, that, that opinion is in conflict with the Constitution and the Supremacy Clause. Because the Supremacy Clause says the federal government is only supreme where they make laws under the authority of the United States, which is by the Constitution. Judge lied again. Huh. Well, he had to lie, so otherwise he couldn't rule against the, the provision. That's basically, I mean, there's more stuff here. I'm going to read this over the weekend, see if there's more I want to bring up with, uh, uh, with Jonathan. But that's basically it. 
The judge misinterprets the supremacy clause, probably everything else. So this judge used misinformation to make their ruling. Shouldn't that be banned on Twitter? <laughs> I'm going to go through this whole case and see if I can bring it up with Jonathan. I'm basically done. I think I've covered everything I wanted to cover. We've got 20 minutes left, but I can bag it. <laughs> Jackie, what do you think? Anything else you want to talk about? I think we've just proven this. I think we've proven this judge to be a, uh, a tool of, of the uh, of the Marxist deep state, and not a constitutional judge. Well, we ain't finished with him. Oh no! Oh no! It's going to be appealed. Well, I'll, I'll talk to Jonathan, you know, between now and Monday, and uh, see if he's interested in, in, in talking about this. I am, um, but he'd be a great person to ask about that because maybe he can, he, maybe he knows that Wilson case without me looking it up. <clears throat> you know, he knows a lot of stuff. So, anything else in the news that uh, that you want to talk about? Uh, we have uh, the Waco anniversary coming up. We've got Trump didn't get arrested, as we predicted. <laughs> as a lot of people predict, actually. We, we can't take credit for that one. Um, the banks are bail- they're bailing out their rich friends in the banks and uh, you know, letting other industries go by the wayside. And in general, um, they're screwing up the economy. They're going to print more money. They're going to raise inflation. They're going to spend more money. They're going to do everything possible to, to uh, sabotage the economy and destroy it. That's pretty much where we are. And none of it's legal because they're not even a legal government. So we're being destroyed by an illegal well, government, to go to, uh, and no one's doing it. I'm going, going to Missouri's Attorney General's Twitter page and uh, give him some suggestions. That'd be a good idea. Share it with me. Retweet it to my uh, my Twitter, or bring it up Monday. You know, I, I just made note of what you, uh, you uh, made mention of, so okay, it won't be. Yeah, you can also. Know. Also go to the Action Radio legal page uh, and post there. Uh, legal page and the gun page, Action Radio gun page. Uh, in fact, I think I put the the judges, uh, the article in the judges, you know, both places. Yeah. yeah. The state wants to preserve the Constitution. Now he's trying to say this judge is. Yeah, that's not like bad behavior. That that is a violation. Mm-hmm. He's crazy. So in other words, the only way for the judge to come to the decision he did or opinion he did was to violate the Constitution, misrepresent the Constitution, leave out the key phrase of the Constitution, and then use his misinterpretation, his uh, complete distortion of the Constitution to come to an erroneous conclusion. So he's using a lie about the Constitution to create a bogus decision on the Constitution. That's why judges shouldn't have the authority yes, of judicial he's review. He's, yep. he's misleading. Mm-hmm. Don't go to your attorney general. Yeah. Well, let, let's hope that the uh, the lawyers uh, in the state of Missouri are smart. The government lawyers uh, are smart enough to uh, you know adopt the arguments that we we have laid out for them. We've laid out a pretty good uh, appeal, I think. You know, he left out the key phrase in his supremacy argument. I'll check out the other arguments, too. But in his supremacy argument, he left out the most important part, that the supremacy clause only applies to laws and regulations uh, and everything else duly made under the authority of the United States. And where it's not under the authority of the United States, they have no jurisdiction. They have no ability to make laws. So all Missouri did was restate the Supreme Law, the Second Amendment, over the judge's opinion which, of course, the Constitution is always over a judge's opinion unless the judge is reaffirming what it says in the Constitution. Yeah. Funny how that works out. didn't take long to find it, too. Under the authority of the United States, Article 6, 
paragraph two. Yeah, we were right talking there. about these last week. Remember, I was telling you about the I had been in a discussion about someone claiming, someone thinking that the that a treaty can surplant the Constitution. Let's talk about that for a minute. That'd be a good thing to close on. So treaties, uh, the government has. Well, let's go back to Article Six, the Supremacy Clause, because okay, it mentions treaties in there. So it says here, the Constitution and the laws of the United States, laws of the United States, in other words, the federal government laws, right, which shall be made in pursuance mm-hmm. thereof, and all treaties made, which is a federal authority that's been delegated to them, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States. In other words, U.S. jurisdiction, federal government jurisdiction, which is, only, which is limited by the Constitution, right, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges that's in every state shall be bound on thereby. Go ahead, Pianchi. So basically, the supreme law of the land, they're talking about the Constitution, not the treaty. No, when they say the they, supreme law, when they say the supreme law, of land, it says, it says, uh, it says that law, the, it says the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It says so clearly. And the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof. In other words, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Laws made in the United States, which shall be in pursuance thereof. In other words, are compliant with the Constitution of the federal government are also the supreme law of the land. Treaties made are the supreme law of the land, whether they're made or shall be made. But it all is contingent on if it's under the authority of the United States. So a foreign treaty, a foreign power having power over us, whether it's the UN, the World Health Organization, the WHO, you know, or any other foreign body, is not under the authority of the United States. And the authority of the United States comes from the Constitution. Right. But those treaties are invalid. Any time any government entity under the Constitution, that would be Brandon. If Brandon makes a treaty signing our rights away, that treaty is automatically invalid because he didn't make it under the authority of the United States. He made it, he made it outside the Constitution. Because if any provision of a treaty violates any provision of the Constitution, especially the Bill of Rights, it's automatically invalid. It's moot. It's dead. Because he had no authority to make that treaty. Neither does the Senate. Because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So there's your argument right there. Article 6, paragraph 2. It's all there. Very brilliantly stated, too. So everything, so the Constitution, so the federal government only has jurisdiction if they're operating under the Constitution. Anytime they operate outside the Constitution, they have no jurisdiction. They have no authority. And they're certainly not supreme. But they are saying what they do. That's why, the, that's why the federal government can enforce the Second Amendment on the states. But also the states can enforce the Second Amendment on the federal government when they're not complying with it. See, it works both ways. And it says anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. So they even con- this is a little bit of a contradiction. I'm not sure how this comes out. So, uh, so it says, oh, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. I, I, that's a Jonathan question. I need, to explain to, I need to know why that's in there. But treaties, the only treaties that are valid. I think it's in there. I think ahead. it's in there because of the times when it was written. I think it needs to be amended to be better clarified, not taking anything from it but reinforcing the powers of the Constitution. And you see you got sentences running together with kind of further complicated things that would right. make people think what well, a treaty is supreme, is, but it's not. 
Well, I'm wondering. You can't you can't fault them. They are of their time, like we are of our time. But it always seems like there's an escape clause. You know, they always they always like allow a little extra, like a just in case clause. So there's anything in the Constitution or laws of any state. Uh, to the contrary, notwithstanding. So, uh, so other provisions of the Constitution don't apply. So if the Constitution says somewhere that it's not the supreme law of the land, then that, that might be contrary. So I'm not sure. I'd have to, I'd have to, I mean, that's going to take some research. But it seems very clear. And that me. goes along with the uh, thinking. Well, it goes mm-hmm. along with the education of uh, people today. Mm-hmm. You got to go back with a basis of education that would lead them to thinking different than what was being thought back in the days that they wrote that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean uh, just think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it work. It has to be, uh, you, it has to be tedious and surgically mm-hmm. amended, whereas it clarifies and strengthens what was meant to be, but when people read it today, they don't read it that way. Or they try to add something to it, especially a slick person like an Obama. <laughs> or slickly was what you used to call Bill Clinton. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, again, but I find it very interesting that, that selectively uh, leaving out a sentence is another example of what people leave out all the time. And I forgot what it was. Oh, the 14th Amendment. They, live out the, they leave out the subject of the jurisdiction clause, which means that illegal aliens cannot give birth to Americans. That's left out. So they leave out the key phrase, the controlling phrase, the condition phrase. So in other words, the Constitution, well, it's very simple. So the first point, the Constitution is, is the supreme law of the land. But it doesn't, give the federal go- it doesn't make the federal government the supreme law of the land. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. The federal government serves under the Constitution. And they're only supreme where they've been given authority by the Constitution. Well, the authority that they've been given by the Constitution is that they can't touch the right to keep and bear arms. So anything they do in abrogation of that is outside of their authority. They have violated the Constitution. And you cannot say that a violation of the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and yet that's what that judge did. He says that anything that the federal government does makes it the supreme law of the land because of the supremacy clause. That's not true. The federal government is only supreme if they have the authority to be supreme, and they only have authority to be supreme if they make laws under the authority of the United States, which is under the Constitution, which they obviously didn't with the, BAT, with the ATF, uh, FBI, red flag laws, you know, confiscation, registration, fees, stamps, silencers, no fully automatic, all that kind of, none of that stuff's constitutional. So my question would be, is Missouri going to now uh, allow fully automatic firearms? without federal stamps and taxes and registration. That would be interesting. But Greg, but Greg, you can kill a lot of people with an automatic weapon. Yes, you can. But that's what criminals do. We're not talking about the illegal use of a fully automatic weapon. We're talking about the right to own one. And the Second Amendment gives an absolute right to own, to keep and bear fully automatic firearms. It does not give you permission to use them any way you want. And I think people forget that too. Anyway, I think I've covered everything. Pianchi, have I missed anything? Yeah, let me look around the floor. I don't see anything. <laughs> uh, 
Hey, I'm giving you a cheer for a while. Thanks for all your help. So thank you very much today. I really appreciate you being here for, for much of the whole show. That was great. Uh, Marco in the Netherlands, you take care. I, Have a great – go ahead. So, what, Pia, I wish sorry? my buddy Dan was here. He would love – I'd like to hear his comment on this one. Dan, who would yeah. that be? The Second Amendment guy out of Florida. <clears throat> oh, you mean Jim? Jim, yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. No, I just want to make sure who we're talking about. Yeah, Jim Dykes used to be on the show. Uh, he had a, a job commitment. He couldn't continue. And I'm hoping Shirley will come back, too. She's taking a leave. So she'll be, be gone for a bit. But uh, hopefully she'll uh, uh, get the time uh, to come here as well. I, I miss our gun chats on Fridays. But we certainly had one today. Yeah. We just didn't have our regular people. Uh, to do it. So we'll see. All right. Next week, well, we've got a big uh, – I'll be talking about the Atlanta Convention. And, of course, we're getting closer and closer to the anniversary of Waco. Uh, Trump's well, – let's, well, let me ask you one last question. Um, do you think Trump in Waco is going to bring up the government massacre by Bill Clinton in Waco? It'd be interesting to see. I mean, why else would he go there? I mean, of all the places – he could go anywhere in the country. And yet, on the 30th anniversary of the government massacre in Waco, he goes to Waco. Now, that's not a coincidence. I mean, I, you know, I miss a lot of things. I'm not missing this one. Something is definitely up. Yeah, you're right. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah, we'll talk Monday after the rally. If, you, if you've missed it live, you can always catch it on replay, and I'll have it posted on Facebook, too. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll talk to you Monday. Same to you. Talk to you later. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Well, I played everything I need to play, so let me just give our websites. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're at uh, blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. That's our, our show site. Our legislative site is writeyourlaws.com, W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. And our, our uh, substack is gregpenglis.substack.com. That's where all my articles are. More coming out. I'll have one today. Uh, it's been a while since I wrote one, so it's been a few days, so I've got to do that. And our contribution site, givesendgo.com slash action radio. Well, the only thing left to play is our classical music selection, so I shall do that. And I will talk to you all Monday morning, 7 a.m. Central Time in, from Milton, Florida, on the Gulf Coast um, of, uh, of the beautiful state of Florida in the upper uh, northwest corner. Talk to you Monday. <laughs>
With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.